Hey, After Buzzers, before we move on to your next topic, we just want to say thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. Plus, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Also, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Plus, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Hey guys, Maria Menunos here. Before your favorite TV after show begins, we want to let you know about my new show on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. It's called Conversation with Maria and it's live Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific 1 p.m. Eastern. Go to conversationswithmaria.com for more info. Buzz you later. You're tuning in to the online broadcast network AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after show entertainment. <laughs> TV, the destination for TV superfans, producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows, interviewing celebrities and showrunners, and bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, everyone, and welcome to this After Buzz special on Making a Murderer. Fans, we have a very special show for you today. This is a one-time, two-hour special, a roundtable of attorneys here to break down the legal issues that had you scratching your head, wondering, what the heck, is this legal? Is this allowed? What is going on here? We're going to break things down for you issue at a time and uh, let me introduce you to our panel of attorneys here. My name is Chelsea Galicia. This here we got BJ Abron and Shaka Smith and Mari Fagel Henderson. If we look familiar to you, that's because we are the panel from Black Hollywood's Live, Justice is Served, along with the original creator of Justice is Served, Mari. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for being yes. here to join me for the show. So much to talk about. So much to talk wow. about. And we first got to start with the overall view of the film. So this Netflix docuseries is a 10-part series created by two women, uh, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos. And many have said that they showed a one-sided picture of the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case. So they, in all fairness to them, were students when they saw in 2005 the New York Times story about Stephen Avery having been exonerated for the rape and then being charged for the murder. So they went to Manitowoc to check things out and ended up moving there right. for a year and a half. And they became embedded with the families and with uh, the defense teams. And they have said that they tried to get the story from the prosecutor to have Kenneth Kratz involved in it, but he declined, saying that they, he didn't think that it could be fair and, and impartial, and so he didn't want to participate. So this story was made over 10 years, right? And the, the, criti- the other criticism that I heard that was fair is that even the title, Making a Murderer, suggests that they had the point of view that the state made him out to be a murderer. But they insist that they came upon it just by chance and didn't have an opinion 
either way. And see, when, when I actually um, heard the title, Making a Murderer, to me it sounded like a double part. It had a two-part meaning. One yeah. was, did the system in which he was incarcerated for 18 years turn him into a murderer? Yeah. Or was he set up? That's what I first thought. And that's thought. what I thought, too, as well. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. I thought it was going to be one side was was being incarcerated for 18 years in prison. Did that turn him into right. a murderer? And the other side was, did the government frame him because he had this, you know, civil, several million dollar lawsuit against them? Exactly. And so I actually personally went into the show thinking I wouldn't like it because I knew it would be so pro-defense. And having worked at the district attorney's office, mm-hmm. I kind of come in from a more pro-prosecution <laughs> standpoint. But I was surprised I thought I would be aggravated, and I was so shocked. In the other direction. In the other direction. I kept wanting to not like it, and I kept wanting to think, oh, this is too pro-defense, but then every time I was like... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is fucked up. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> totally. It's the truth. And it's then the truth. there were some things that were left out. But, yeah. you know, to be fair, there was like, would we really watch a 600 hour exactly. movie, as exactly. one of the defense attorneys said? So there were a couple of issues that were left out, and I wanted us to go through those to see would those have changed your mind or you think made a difference? Mm-hmm. So one of them is this so called sweat DNA evidence that was found under the latch of the hood. I, for one, have never heard of sweat DNA. And in fact, I didn't, I still don't believe that there is DNA in our sweat. What did you guys think of that piece that was not included? Well, I mean, I can't speak in terms of of, of whether, I don't know whether I believe it or not. If scientifically they can show that DNA actually exists within sweat, I mean, I think I I, I might personally believe it, actually. Um, Now, whether the procedures in which they acquire that DNA are set in stone and set in a way that is fair and impartial, of course, I'm on board with it. And so if that's the case, but, but you know, behind the science of this DNA, I'm for it. I think we should have seen that. It's something that, you know, it would have been interesting. I think we would have all got to find out a little bit more about what that science is. I know. Is, would we actually. have watched this if there was a 20-part series? You, what, you know, 15, I even? I could, have, I could have gone for five more episodes. So yeah. I'm actually been, yeah. pleasantly what? surprised by how many people watch this series and love this series. And I think it is a really great thing. And I just have to tell one quick personal story. When I was sworn in, uh, the judge who swore me in knew I was a journalist. And he said, before I went to law school, and he said, you know, you can do something powerful. You can inform the public about the legal system and about the justice system. And I think that's what these filmmakers did here. Mm -hmm. I do think there was a lot that they left out, which is why we're here to talk about what they did leave out and a lot of the legal things they left out and left unexplained. But a lot of viewers saw this show and then they were so wrapped up in it, they ended up doing their own research. They ended up reading so much about it. And I just think regardless of, you know, their perspective or how they did it, these filmmakers did a great thing in getting America and the viewing public to start talking about the justice system. And I agree. I mean, to me personally, I think that this show 
um, it, it shows the inaccurate, you know, the inadequacy, excuse me, in our justice system. Absolutely. A lot of people are, you know, they don't they don't care. They don't even pay attention to it. And this brought it to the forefront. Yeah. And it showed, in fact, I, I believe Stephen Avery said at one point in this film, uh, and he was deep in an emotional state, and he felt like, you know, you could just tell based upon his tone that he was so down and defeated at this point. But he said, poor people lose. Yeah. Poor people lose all the time. And to me, that's a telling story about what this film actually meant. I think it got um, some reaction from people who normally don't care. You know, there's been, we've talked a lot about the Black Lives Matter movement on Justice is Served. And so there is a segment of the population that has for a long time been unhappy with the American justice system. And now this story reaches a different segment of the population. And so now, you know, more people are wondering, wow, could this happen to me? That person looks more like me perhaps talks more like me that you know because black lives matter a lot of these uh shootings have happened in urban settings and this one happens to be far removed from an urban setting so it gets more people involved and interested in wondering if some sort of injustice could happen to them and i think that's why the reaction has been so massive so there was a couple of other smaller things that i think that they left out or glossed over People said they didn't pay enough attention to the cat incident, um, so that they just mentioned that he had tossed a cat over the fire when, in fact, the cat had been doused in gasoline and then set ablaze. And that is pretty horrific and can be, you know, the sign of somebody is going to be some sort of psychopathic killer. But in this case, that by itself would not have been admitted into evidence, nor are these stories that women came out saying that they experienced sexual violence uh, due to Stephen Avery's action. So unless there was a conviction or some sort of pattern yeah. that those stories were going to help show that matched what happened in the murder, that prior bad act stuff would not come in because some of it was not even adjudicated. Right. Well, it yeah. wouldn't come into the criminal trial, but just <coughs> the fact that this is supposed to be an unbiased documentary, the what they chose to gloss over in Stephen Avery's past is questionable. And I think that you had to go in as a viewer kind of taking everything they said with a grain of salt. And, you know, I think viewers know better now after the jinx and serial and so many of um, these kind of journalism advocacy programs um, to go into it, you know, not blindly, but I do think that this had a different perspective. I think serial was a little bit more balanced in their coverage than than this. But see, program. from another perspective, one of the reasons was I, one of the reasons why I appreciate them not actually showing that is because when it comes down to trials, you mentioned that's not coming in. And so when I view this documentary, I want to see was this guy was his trial fair? Was the rulings in a, in, a, in a course of the trial mm-hmm. fair, and was the uh, the final decision to send this man to the, to jail for the rest of his life was that fair? And if you bring that information into your mind, for instance, those jurors cannot bring that into the deliberation process. This is outside information, yeah. and therefore it has no bearing or relevance as to whether we actually convict him. And so when I'm watching this, I want to see and hear the things that I'm supposed to see and hear to make a fair and impartial decision as to whether I believe he's actually guilty of this crime. All right. And what something else that I saw that for me when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's weird that they left this out. But then again, it wasn't. Is that apparently Stephen Avery had ordered leg irons and handcuffs. So he owned them. And he said that he was getting them to use it on his girlfriend, Jody. That's according to a Milwaukee magazine back in 2006. But 
when those items were tested, no DNA of Teresa Halbach was found on it. So then I was like, all right, well, then I'm not so mad that it was left out of the documentary. Well, I, I think I'm a little upset that it was left out. I think that's a, a chief, one of the things that she was tied to this bed. And I kept wondering to myself, what was she tied with? I was wondering where those items were. Um, so obviously it doesn't necessarily solve that question, but that would have at least raised to me some sort of bal- fair balancing of the way they're presented. This is true. And, and also that there was a bullet with uh, Teresa right. Halbach's DNA on it that was found in the garage that matched a rifle that hung over his bed. That hasn't been well explained, but they, you know, that bullet was found November 5th, yeah. and for reasons we'll talk about later, yeah. anything that resulted from that November 5th search may be tainted. sort of, yeah, tainted, yeah. poisonous. What is it called? Fruit I can't remember. Poisonous tree. Thank okay. you. It's been a while since I was in law school. <laughs> I think also not only was the certain like storylines and evidence that they didn't put in the show, not only is that remarkable, but also the people who weren't interviewed. The fact that um, Jody, his fiance at the time, was never interviewed since you know they she yeah. was interviewed at the time in real time as it was going on and then they broke up she was never interviewed later um penny bernstein was never interviewed you know the first victim because she chose not to be interviewed because she didn't like the filmmaker's perspective according to the new yorker so um i do think what you're not seeing and especially who you're not seeing on screen is also very telling. Right. And a lot of his family members, what I didn't like about the filmmaker's perspective was acting as if this is one close family. That family had a lot of infighting, and we'll talk yeah. about this later, but four of the people who Stephen Avery um, points fingers at who as, as to who they could have done it are his own family members. Right. So I just think that it was a little bit shaded there their perspective. And here's something else that has was left out, and you can tell me how um, critical you think this was. So this was not the first time that Teresa Hallback had been to the house. Uh, she had been there about six times before yeah. to take pictures, and so we didn't know from just watching the movie any of the history, and also on the day uh, that she came out to the Avery salvage yard that there had been several calls placed by Stephen Avery to Teresa Hallback's cell phone number, twice using the star six seven feature so that the number wouldn't show up, and then the last time with unblocked. Correct. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you make of that? Do you think I, that that I think that, yeah, is I th- important? Yeah, I think that was important. And I think another thing they left out was she had apparently been there before, and he'd come out in a towel. And right. She, the first time that that she went to take yeah. pictures, he answered the door in a towel. And, and she had wh- reported as she reported that as like she felt uncomfortable with that happening. I, I could see that, but I could also see it not being a big deal to him. Yeah, of course, but I think that would <laughs> would have been very pertinent to be to be in the. I the, agree. Yeah, and then what, another thing though, however, was the fact that she was the only auto trader photo- photographer in the entire state. So yeah. a lot of people felt like there was a sense that maybe he lured her there over those several different times, but if you're going to deal with auto trader, she was the only person to deal with. Right. I thought that was interesting, too, how people were like, why was he so insistent that she be the one that come out there? Yeah. Well, it happens to be she's the only one yeah. who sort of qualifies to photograph for that magazine. I also think that one person who wasn't featured very much in the film was Teresa Hallback herself for being the victim. Mm, there wasn't true. anything about who she was leading up to this, and it was the only talk of Teresa Hallback was in this brutal death. I wonder yeah. And if, her brother, it, it, as it yeah. relates to the trial, but there wasn't any interviews of her family, anything about who she was as a person leading up to it, anything about her life, and 
I just think about that because, you know, when Cyril came out, um, the victim's family in that case said that they were kind of angry as to all of the coverage it was getting because people are sensationalizing it and they don't realize this is a real real. person. Mm -hmm. This was a real family that had to go through this. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what the Halbecks were thinking now that Stephen Avery is getting all this attention. And Teresa Halbeck wasn't really represented as anyone other than a murder victim. Yeah, right. I agree. Well, I wonder (laughs) if they were limited on their ability to find more information about her because the family did not want to participate. And also how... This isn't a Stephen Avery versus Teresa Halbach. They both could have been victims. Well, she certainly was. He could be victims here. So I I don't know if, you know, one has to lose at the benefit of of the other. may have muddied the water too much. And and I, I, I I don't know if knowing more about her would do anything for our understanding of the criminal justice system. And I think, if anything, that's what this movie was about. Right. But I think it would have been informative for this because even with the alternative theories of the case, you know, they have, a lot of them have to deal with her life that she led. Um, so I think we did miss out a little bit on more of the story behind well, why is she the only one in the state? Why is she there this many times? Yeah. Well, could it be the ex-boyfriend? Could it be the, you know? Right. So we, we missed out part of that storyline that would have teased out more about who she was and kind of giving her honor in that way, but at the same time would have definitely contributed to our processing of the facts here. Yeah. And then we also missed out on the whole storyline of what those 18 years in prison were like for him. I kept yeah. waiting for an episode to be about what those 18 years in prison were like and what it does to someone to be incarcerated for 18 years and does that turn you into an evil person. Right. I thought that was the storyline. Yeah. And then, you know, it glossed over very quickly what his 18 years were like and I was a little Indeed. bit surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, when I first when I first started watching, I agree. I thought that's what the show was actually going to be about. How the justice uh, yeah. system turns yeah. people into in murderers. Eighteen years. No, but yeah. what living, what being in prison is like. So much right. of this show is about the criminal justice system, but it was only about up until prison. What about once you get to prison and what that does to someone and what being incarcerated yeah. is like? There wasn't much discussion. I wish right. these filmmakers didn't have access to that because they didn't even know about this story until two thousand and five. Well, but I, I think it would have. I think it was more jarring the way they did it to start off with this. Definitely. Yeah, because I, I was wondering at that point, 18 years in prison, what's next? What's you know? next? And, and, I mean, you have to consider also, we're talking, right now we're talking about all of the facts, evidence or potential evidence that could have came in or that we at least could have saw on a DVD or excuse me, on a, uh, on a series, but we still had 10 episodes. So you have to consider the amount of information that they vetted through the process of coming up with these yeah. 10 episodes. And some people might have thought these 10 episodes were a little drawn out. Some people want to see more. You know, yeah. there's yeah. been talk about, you know, is there going to be another, uh, you know, another season? season? Yeah. And yeah. for the most right? part, so, I think they really emphasized that for those 18 years, he was making himself a lawyer, essentially, like just trying to teach himself to write and to... Especially you know, this second time around. Second I don't time. know yeah. how much the first time around he was, but we'll talk yeah. about I was yeah. very impressed yeah, by actually, him. Yeah, actually, yeah. You know, yeah. he really had to. He has no other choice. So one, one last thing that, that has come up that was left out is the conversation between Brendan and his mother where Brendan says that there was inappropriate, I think it suggests sexual touching by Stephen Avery. And why was that left out? Um, why was it left out? I mean, for me, as first, we don't know how true or not that it is. And even if true, that speaks nothing about the murder case of Teresa Hallback. And so as much as 
people want to like, oh, well, if he was guilty of that, then he's probably did this or some blending of the two. You know, you want to I think a lot of people want to find a narrative. Is Stephen Avery a good guy or a bad guy? And then convict him of something. And that's right. the problem. And I, and that's the only logical reason a conclusion that I can come to 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 on the basis of what you know what the filmmakers left out or chose to leave out and add is just the mere fact that it's not about whether he's a good guy or a bad guy at all it's about whether he committed this crime but but I think if you're trying to present something for the public to kind of consume it, it showed bias on, on they already established this this kid can be you know swayed by the wind so uh, I would not even take that as a at a grain of salt I would take it as a grain of salt why didn't you include it what are you trying? What agenda are you trying to pursue? So I thought that was bizarre. They didn't include that. Well, there was a lot they didn't include about this whole family because you know we'll talk about later on at the end that crazy, terrible defense investigator who wrote that letter that basically said like you know we need to wipe out this entire family. Yeah, that's crazy. But that comment, obviously, that guy was crazy. But that comment had to have come from somewhere. Like whether there was pedophilia or whatever was going on in that family was only like very lightly glossed right. over. There it, wasn't much discussion about what had gone on with his family. You got the sense uh, from the beginning. Just listen to some of the terms that, and like you, like you're saying, they didn't go into this, it, you know, any deeper than what was stated by Avery, which was just the mere fact that the community did not like this family. You got that sense immediately from some of his subtle statements. And they made it sound like the community didn't like the Averys because they were well off. They were like, oh, he's an Avery and he dresses different. But then they weren't well off because (laughs) he needed to use his settlement money to get the best defense attorneys. And and Brendan had to have a public defender. Like, it it was... My sense was that that they didn't like them because they kind of, you know hummed around to the beat of their own drum that they didn't fit in they didn't dress like everyone they didn't talk like everyone perhaps didn't have the same values and priorities and things like that that they kind of kept to themselves on their home on you know Avery Road and so they sort of self segregated almost and I think that's why the community didn't like them I didn't get the sense that it was so much um, economic so let's go to the first case. And in the first case, he was convicted of a sexual assault against P- Penny Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And then 18 years later, with the help of DNA, he's set free. But this raises a huge legal issue about the validity, reliability of you know victim or eyewitness identification. Most people think that it's pretty infallible. I see you. Doesn't matter really if I see you for three seconds or, you know, three minutes. If I see you again, I'm going to remember that it was you. But it, we find out if you just do a little bit of research that that's not the case yeah. at all. Uh, the, in fact, the single biggest cause of wrongful convictions is mistaken eyewitness identification. And then 334 cases have been overturned t- thanks to DNA and eyewitness mistakes played a part in about 75% of those cases. So is there something that we should all, I don't know, know as a public when we do jury duty and instruction that witness IDs should not be relied on 100%? Well, I think from a layperson's perspective, there are two legitimate um, concerns or perspectives that you could actually believe in, right? There's one perspective that if I saw this person, like you stated, with my own eyes, I saw this person. Mm -hmm. In fact, this event was so traumatizing, I will never forget who this person was, right? Now, there's another perspective that in the midst of this traumatizing event, 
there is so much going on that you you're so you're in such a frantic state that you cannot actually excuse me accurately you know see the person and report who the person is and not to mention if it's an hour two days a week later when you're mm-hmm. actually doing a drawing or something like that it you know it, the view changes and so I think as a lay person those are two legitimate perspectives that one person could latch onto and actually believe in but I, I do think the greater problem is and what we had seen was them being steered towards mm-hmm. certain suspects. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it seems that eyewitness testimony is typically good when you just ask a straightforward question and people respond. Usually you get that initial answer tends to be they don't remember or they give you a description, um, which, she, which she did. It was when they were stared to different people that the brain started making connections and just latched on. Right. And in this case, there was word that the composite sketch was based on the mugshot of Stephen Avery, which would be totally okay. inappropriate yeah. uh, and that somebody said oh this sounds like Stephen Avery and so that's how the you know right. sort of finger started to get pointed at him uh, and it's not so much of an issue here but it's known that witness ha- witnesses have a hard time picking out of a lineup somebody of a different race like they have dif- difficulty mm-hmm. distinguishing between features and stuff of people of the opposite of different races so I think this is like the first time that some people are really understanding the limitations of uh, witness identifications and then how sometimes law enforcement can be suggestive. Oh, yes. We're supposed to have safeguards about suggestiveness, right, Mari? We do have safeguards, <laughs> and, and that's why a lot of this show um, bothers me because it is attacking the criminal justice system, which rightfully should be here, but it didn't explain any of the safeguards that are usually in place that maybe failed him here, but are that are <coughs> usually in place. There is a Supreme Court case that says if a witness identification is unnecessarily suggestive, then it that person, that defendant, has been denied his due process rights, which was the basis for um, Stephen Avery's appeal the first time around from the first case before the DNA evidence came in. But that's only one part of the case. So I'm sure the Court of Appeal said, okay, even if they thought that the witness identification was unnecessarily suggestive, um, there's a harmless error standard, you know, taken as a whole... Even if the ID was a problem, the whole rest of the trial was okay, that it's enough to keep the conviction, to uphold the conviction. And none of that was explained. It was just kind of like his attorney saying, I couldn't believe the Court of Appeal agreed with this. You know, they made him out to be such an evil person. And it didn't explain any of the law that has been in place since 1967. That Supreme Court case was in the 1960s saying that unnecessarily suggestive IDs are denial of due process. None of that was explained. And so... Do we think that it should have been the job of the filmmakers to present the law? No, but put things in context. They talked about... They had a whole segment about how he he appealed the Penny Bernstein case up to the Court of Appeal, and then they talk about that decision, but then they don't talk anything about what was in that decision or why. And so if you're going to go into the appeal, then go into what his bases were and what the law is. Just mention it. I mean, I wonder if that's, like, interesting to us, but if they thought maybe most people A layperson may not care about that. Yeah. Or understand no, it. No, but I, a layperson... 
person would think, okay, well, at least there's a law in place that <laughs> it's not like we're all like flying blind in the wind in the justice but, system, but and <laughs> it's okay to just go around <laughs> having cops say, oh, you know, do you think this person did it? I think it's that person. But we, many, there's laws in place that say that's not okay, but none of that was explained. Yes, and in practice, though, things that go down often the way they the did time, yeah. in this case and that and who really is going to say that it's overly suggestive and how often do judges in the appeal actually they say it but <laughs> so but once somebody is convicted we see the tendency not only in this case but in many cases for the later courts to just rubber stamp what happened before. Yes, because they're only, they're not reviewing the facts of the case. They're reviewing the trial record only for errors of law, not facts. So they're limited in what they can and can't do. It's very rare that a criminal conviction would be overturned on appeal. I think that that point would have just kind of further shone the light on this small town kind of how they kind of stayed close and were able to do what they wanted to do kind of roughshod. So I don't know if it would have added anything to it because that to me was highlighting the fact that because they have no oversight, they're able to do these things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought I got that already from the, the documentary. Yeah. So there are, is law, but rule about not supposed to be overly suggestive, but I, my experience, my observation has been in practice, I have seen things that appear to me to be overly suggestive. Yeah, I mean, any any case where there's any real significant money involved, you're gonna get those protections. And I think the point was that this case didn't get those protections, but I think we garnered that from different you know information we got in the documentary. Yeah, his first case around was a young public defender, yeah. and she didn't have the resources like he did in his second case around to really you know investigate the case. And a lot of times in these um, witness identification cases. Um, the defense can present experts who talk about the reliability right. of witness IDs and the unreliability of witness IDs, and they can explain that to the jury. And then a jury instruction is given that to give it only the weight that it's due, you know. And so, but that again, That's that takes game. resources, yeah. right? And also, you know, when somebody is very confident in their assertion that this is the person, that confidence is viewed yeah. very he- heavily by the the jury. However, studies show that there is no connection between how certain somebody is and their accuracy. But of course, no, no jury wants to tell a rape victim you're incorrect. Yeah. You know? And then I think there's also something they weren't explaining to the viewers about this family because they talk about the main basis for his conviction the first time around was this witness ID and then the fact that the jury didn't believe 21 different alibis that the family members gave that he wasn't there. So what's wrong with these family members if the jury is not believing 21 different people? Right, that is They're really Like, you know, there had to be something. Well, I, or they just think that the, the family members are going to say what is best for Stephen Avery because but they're his family. 21 of them? There's and these something people, going on. And these well, people may have had background, infor- personal background information and remember, Penny about Bernstein, these people. This is a small town. Penny yeah, Bernstein was a, a very well-respected, well-to-do woman. And so she carried a lot of weight just based on the fact that she wasn't an Avery. And I think everyone right. has town is just mad he was suing for 36 million so later on yeah yeah, well, yeah yeah in the second case yeah for sure yeah all right bj let's talk about brendan's confessions confessions okay and so this this is a, a huge aspect obviously throughout this uh throughout this show and, and in fact it plays a huge aspect in the trial as well um 
Uh, and confessions are important because it's one of those things that a jury tends to hold on to. Once someone gives a confession, they believe this confession, and they hold on to that, irrespective of what other evidence comes. And that's why uh, a confession is so important that we have to actually focus in on this. And in this case, it actually, excuse me, in a show, it actually created a completely different storyline uh, in which we address and we talk about Brendan Dassey and his case that evolved from that confession, along with the main storyline uh, for Stephen Avery. And so, um, obviously, Brandon Dassey, just the background on, on Brandon Dassey, he gave a confession when he was 16 years old, um, for those of you who haven't watched the show. Um, and he had a reported IQ of about 70. And I think 70 is right at that point where um, they call you legally incompetent, I, I would believe. I guess that's the terminology for it. Or at least intellectually disabled enough exactly. to raise it as an issue. Right. And so he was contacted by uh, the deputies or by the police uh, the sheriff at that time uh, on three different occasions before he actually gave a confession in which was an excruciating, we all saw the video, uh, a four-hour interrogation uh, by the police. And you, you just kind of felt sorry for the kid throughout the well, process. What was amazing is that the Brendan now has attorneys who are representing him in the appeal. And those attorneys actually worked on the legislation that caused it to be a right. law that in Wisconsin you have to <coughs> videotape the interrogation mm -hmm. of juveniles because... Well, so I won't go too far into that. So that's really amazing that Brendan's case was one of the first times yeah. that interrogations were videotaped because of that new new law. And even still, with the fact that it was on videotape, it yeah. went so oh. wrong for him. Oh, yeah. I honestly think the most... The biggest tragedy of this whole entire story is Brendan Dassey yeah. and what yeah. happened to him is the most shocking. The fact that the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, said... Innocent people don't confess is a lie. Yep. And he I, I can't imagine that he actually didn't know that. There is overwhelming evidence that there are many people who give false confessions. There because of this technique, this technique, the read technique, the yes. one that we saw being employed on Brendan, is one that yields a lot of false confessions. This is one where they look for any sign of anxiety and take that as a sign of lying and then they keep right. telling you that you're lying until you tell them what you want right. they want you to say and they wear you down with time and they they border on threats or coercion right. which threats or coercion is illegal they're not allowed to do that and, and, and honestly and that's and that's the read technique is a technique that's used all across it is the country. Re, that that company read and associates it's the largest trainer of interrogators in the world right right so we, interrogators are allowed to lie, but they're not allowed to coerce yeah. or threaten. Mm -hmm. Did you see any right. coercion or threat? <laughs> this is where I think the show could have benefited, again, a little bit more talking about the law. Because I think one of the single biggest questions viewers had was, were those cops allowed to do that? Right. That, yeah. was, and, the, that was the overall yeah. question. And yeah. it's yes and no. Cops are allowed to lie to get you to confess. They're allowed to say, oh... Your partner in the other room, he already confessed. He already right. told us we everything. We already have your That's DNA. That's okay. They're allowed yeah. to say, oh, two yeah. women saw you do this. That's a-okay. The test is, when you confessed, was it voluntarily given? Did you voluntarily confess? Right. And if they lie to you, as long as you're telling it, as long as you're confessing, it's voluntary. Right. Yeah. But... One thing that I think wasn't explored with Brendan Dassey, you talked about threats or coercion makes it not voluntary. If you 
promise someone leniency in their case in order to get them to confess, then that turns their confession into one that's not voluntarily right. given. So when those cops said to Brendan, oh, come on, tell us, we'll you're going to you. be back in school. You'll be back in school with your friends. He thought he was going to be going back watching WWE. They had to have said things to make him believe that we if he it. confessed, yeah. then he could go back to school and he'd be all right. That is, yeah. I think, in my mind, a promise of leniency and something that should be explored in his appeals to say that it's not voluntarily given. One other thing about his confessions, and I want to get your take on this, is um, I worked on a case... Um, with the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, it was a videotaped confession again, and the jurors watched the entire three-hour confession, and my job was to type up a transcript of word-for-word word of everything so they could follow along for the whole three hours. The only things that were ever taken out of that three-hour confession was we had to delete certain prejudicial references to gangs and things like that that would have be- would have prejudiced the defendant, but otherwise, as a whole, they saw the entire confession in its whole context. Here, I was very, very surprised that Brendan Dassey's confession video, the fact that it's on video is great. Great. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's great is because you can show the entire thing. They didn't show that last hour and a right. half right. where he says to, you know, mom, they got in my head or they're right. getting in my head. What were his defense attorneys thinking that they didn't play the entire confession right. from yeah. start yeah. to finish? Right. I, I, that's a great question. I don't know. And I also don't know why they didn't put on the stand somebody to say that somebody of Brendan's age and mental ability is easily influenced, didn't understand what was going on when he was being, you know, I think, coerced to tell the police officers what they well, wanted him to say. And that brings up an issue, too, that, that I saw that a lot of people online were, were questioning as to what as to whether a, my, uh, excuse me, a 16-year-old uh, can be actually questioned without their parent or without the lawyer present. They can. Of course, you definitely can. And so obviously the requirements is simply the same requirements that are applicable to us adults. And it's essentially, as you pretty much determined, it just cannot be a coercive. Now, obviously, in that situation, you have to be Mirandized first, obviously. And, but we didn't see that on the documentary. I don't know yeah. if they left that out. From what from what I understand that he actually gave, uh, you know, he, he, he waived his Miranda rights. So uh, that's what I read, that he actually and was given his Miranda warnings. And I heard give part of it. I'm sure they give, gave it all because then it, the only thing that makes it not voluntary is if you didn't read them their Miranda rights. You know, you have the right to remain silent. You have, you can go on. Right. Right. To and presumably that would be the first and if if they don't give the Miranda rights before the confession then the confession's tossed because it's not voluntary so I'm sure they gave the Miranda rights one thing you brought up was you know the does a child have to have his attorney there no but once Brendan had a public defender and that public defender we're going to get into this later though (laughs) Has a scheduling conflict. Him yeah. to be interrogated by the police without him being present is like the worst. It's like ridiculous. making yeah. a bad name for every single one of us on this panel. Right. Like right. every single attorney. Like that man. It's horrible. 
It's horrible. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing. That's where at at that point for our viewers, that's at that point the Sixth Amendment right to counsel had kicked in pretty much at that point. And that kicks in um essentially at any integral part. Once formal proceedings are, are brought against the defendant, he has that right to counsel. And in fact it's not even just the Supreme Court has found that it's not just a right to counsel, it's a right to effective counsel, actually. They have extended that um later. And and as we see and and it was in fact uh, outside of the statement that you made earlier, that was um, the, the the one thing that had me flaming the most was just watching this, the, you know, because I'm definitely a defense attorney, and, and watching this guy and his actions, it was just a travesty to the to the justice system abroad. It and thank God it was on video because had I not seen it for myself, I would have said this kid's probably lying. Now. Yeah, he made yeah. a confession. Now he mm-hmm. wants to back out. Mm-hmm. You know? So just to give you a sense of how often this happens, these are estimates, but statistics for adults about. Um, 20% of exonerated people had been convicted based on a false confession. And for juveniles, it's 40% of cases there where the person uh, had confessed but later was exonerated. Uh, it's even higher, uh, according to the, the Innocence Project. So this is not just happens every once in a while. I mean, this happens pretty regularly and is deserving, again, of the public's knowledge that false confessions do happen so that they can see a confession in the light that it should be viewed and not as an absolute. And, and I, worked, I worked in the public defender's office with the early representation unit and our job was to stop people from confessing because a lot of times the prosecutor would say, well, if you say you're guilty and you confess, guess where you get to go? Home. You get to go home. Right. And in those cases it was true. If they confessed with small things, they would go home. And that would lead to confessions that were completely false. But now the third or fourth time, they're a repeat offender, and now they're facing some real time. Yeah, and and those are tactics that are used on a daily basis. And I agree, Chelsea, about the read technique. And and I know you stated earlier, basically the read technique is focuses in on those behavioral moments, like those sweating, like you mentioned, the anxiety. And it's meant as a two-part. That's one of the focuses. And they really just focus in on... Uh, wearing the person down, and so uh, after these four hours, and, and I don't, I don't understand who could sit back and think that the read technique is proficient in, in what it actually purports, uh, because it's clearly, it, it clearly shows me that under any interview or interrogation, obviously you're in, in custody at this point. Under any uh, interrogation, if I'm innocent or if I'm guilty, I'm going to sweat. It doesn't matter, especially if I'm innocent, because of not even just seeing this show, because of my knowledge on the possibility. Listen, we're all human. When they make statements that, you know, oh, it's it's preposterous to think that, the, the, the you know, the, the, the police officers would. I hate those kind of statements because it's completely inaccurate. We are all humans. Humans are susceptible to bad behavior. And what we see is sometimes police officers. I'm not going to go on record and say that all police officers are bad. That would be a horrific statement to make. But some officers are bad and some yeah. officers engage in this type of behavior. And so when you're in an interrogation, of course, somebody could sweat or somebody will fidget at a given moment. Not to mention a child who's 16 years old and clearly has a low IQ. Doesn't know what's going on. So not all places in the world use this read technique. Britain stopped using right. it. And now they do a more open ended sort of more just asking questions, not trying to get somebody to say something. So perhaps this raises a a, a conversation in this country about whether we want to continue allowing these techniques or follow steps of other countries that have used something that's less confrontational. Because it's a different goal. You see, in, in our interrogations, our goal is not seeking the truth. It's seeking a confession. 
And that's a huge problem. When your goal is to get a confession, you don't care about all this other stuff. You don't care about the truth. Yeah. You're seeking a confession. Now, when you're looking for the truth, your approach will be completely different. And that's a huge problem that we definitely need to address in this country. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Well, this has all you know happened over the decades when we've had this tough on crime thing that we elect politicians who are tough on crime and prosecutors tough on crime and then it goes down to the police. Right. I see Mari a little unsure <laughs> if she wants to agree with that. <laughs> Just because this is a lot of hating on cops as a whole and well, their no, techniques and everything and there are situations where they're dealing with brutal murder investigations and dangerous people out there who haven't been caught yet and a community that's scared and they have someone there and that person, the last thing they want to do is confess and tell the truth. So I don't necessarily think that these techniques are wrong. I think that there are certain safeguards in place. One is videotaping in certain states, putting it in context, letting the jury watch the entire thing. I think if the jury had watched an entire four hours, if they're sitting there for four hours and they're they're seeing, you know, what is this like to sit there for four hours and have that? And I do think that, you know, um, being Mirandized first, making sure that it's voluntary, I think that there are certain safeguards in place. Yes, there are failures, and the system fails, like it did Brendan Dassey here. But I'm not going to outright say that, you know, cops' techniques is always wrong in eliciting confessions. I wouldn't say that that also. I just think, I definitely wouldn't say it's always wrong, because obviously you're going to get some people who are right, but the fact that it's wrong, where people go to jail for 18 years, and obviously this wasn't based upon a confession, but there are uh, tons of cases out there, as we sit today, that did not, of course, and, and I'll go back to state, yeah, they were poor, but he had some money to get an attorney at one point. Mm-hmm. If he did not, we may have never heard about this case. And there's a lot of people in our society, not in Wisconsin, I'm talking in New York, I'm talking in big cities, who actually have fell victim to these policies, which are overreaching, and uh, again, and not seeking truth. They're seeking So what I do also think that the public needs to be educated. I'm always surprised when um, someone has read their Miranda rights and then they don't invoke the right to an attorney, you know, and I guess we're all attorneys, so we just think it's crazy. But I think if the public was educated, then a lot of these well, false confessions wouldn't true. happen in the first place because they would have had, you know, they would have. And some people say, well, they say I want an attorney and then a police officer will say, well, what, or, are you, yeah. what are you hiding? If you're so innocent, what do you need an attorney for? And then they might change their mind. And, right. we, and we, we have even the safeguard of the videotape, but given the confession we had Ken Kratz go out there and kind of make these make these statements to the public that started to kind of further taint the jury pool. Yes. And so oh, yeah. so you, you might have a safeguard of a confession that maybe get the confession thrown out but sometimes the damage is too is already done. Right, because that confession was never used in Stephen Avery's yeah. case. Prosecutors never put Brendan on the stand or any of that evidence on the stand. So then the prosecutor painted this heinous picture of mm-hmm. this gruesome murder that went down. I think tainting the jury pool yeah. and Powerful. then was like, "Oh, never Never mind. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. we're going to be talking yeah. about Ken yeah, we'll Kratz we'll later, but sure. talking yeah. about tainting the jury pool, I know, BJ, um, you're going to be talking about the jury because I have a lot to say yes, here on this yes. specific yes. jury. But but I still, I want to go into a little bit, uh, like, like some of what took place during that first uh, interrogation. Uh, and I'll just kind of read some of the transcript here. Actually, I shouldn't even call it transcript, just my cutouts of it. Because what you actually saw during that interrogation was not uh, Brendan Dassey 
making his affirmative statements. There were no uh, statements where he just went on talking. Everything was short answered and everything was fed to him. And that was a huge problem. And what these officers did is they um, they essentially wanted him to say a, a number of different things. And one of the ones that I f- wanted to focus on was that whole interaction where they were going, something happened to the head. Right. You know, tell us mm-hmm. what happened to the head. And so they asked him a number of times, what happened to the head? And he answered, um, the hair was cut. He cut her hair off, right? And they said, well, what else happened to the hair? He pushed her. What else? Tell us something, something happened to the head. Uh, he cut her cut her throat. He's guessing at this point. He's right. clearly just guessing. guessing. Like he's he does guessing on his homework. from a James Patterson which novel, which was then turned into a movie, movie. and the novel has right. every detail he says except the cutting of the hair. The cutting of the hair is then in the right. movie. Right. So yeah. where did it come from? Yeah. But again... I'm not going to go crazy on the cops here because if a attorney, if a defense attorney was doing his job, he'd bring up this James Patterson novel and everything, which they did a little bit in the trial, but they didn't go really far into right. it. The trial is a chance to attack the credibility of this confession. And, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to just attack the cops here because the attorneys may have not done a full well, we defense. Will, we will definitely well, be talking and about putting well, it on the stand yeah. was yeah. the best decision. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously that's a decision that you rarely want to make as a defense attorney. I, I think that this was a particular circumstance in a particular case where um, you almost had to put him on the stand. You know, as his defense attorney, I think, and, and I'm I'm against putting, I think we talked about this on one of our shows before, I'm completely against putting a defendant on the stand. But because these statements took place, the only way where you would actually get a statement out there was for him to actually statements, to actually take the stand and state that, hey, this is this was coerced. This is my true story. Yeah. But I think the problem was then once he took the stand, he he seemed slightly smarter than he did in all of those videotapes and slightly more confident and a, like yeah. I'm not, not a lot, yeah. but you I still didn't think. This? I agree. He sounded he sounded a little bit more intelligent, yeah. but I didn't think that he sounded as much more intelligent. That you know, it would make me feel like, oh, of course, this guy. He still seemed like he had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. He had no idea what was going on in that process. I wonder, did he, was there a preliminary hearing on his competency to stand trial in the first place because you must know as a defendant more or less what's going on who are the parties what are the consequences you have to be able to help your counsel provide effective yeah. counsel I think you that to- would have been a, a hard argument to make because I think that he was he was competent to stand trial uh, whether he had the mental IQ um, to understand the questioning and what was going on. I mean, the kid, you know, when 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 officers walked out, he said, "Am I going home?" You know, yeah, that's going back. Like I have a project. Yeah. I have a project yeah. I got to get done. You know, yeah. like that was just crazy to me. I just have to add one last thing. I said the biggest tragedy was Brendan Dassey. I honestly think the biggest tragedy is his mother. If you saw in that last oh, episode how much she'd aged in the couple year period and what she must be going through, like that to me. Was yeah. the worst. Yeah. And so um, and let's talk briefly. I know we need to move on to the next subject, but let's talk briefly about that second interrogation uh, that took place. And I'm talking about the one. draws yeah, the drawing. Yeah. And, and if we could show, I have an image of uh, a survey that I was actually um, shown to him. If we could show that, that image of the survey. Uh, that was given to his I think interrogator. It looks, like, it looks like we're being shown the bottom half. I don't right. know if the top half is showing. Is this the one where it had the check the box like yeah, so, I, yeah. I'm sorry, I am not sorry? Yes, yeah. yes. And so, and so, basically, his defense attorney 
um, gave his, uh, his, investigator. His, his investigator. Right, so this was not even the state. This was not yeah. the police. This, this was is his, his team. His this team. Is These were the people who are supposed Look, to be advocating right. for Defending him and for right. his defense. Right. This was by far, to most me, the most over-the-top, yeah. most egregious error in the entire show. And so, yeah. and so, and so just with, with that, um, what that survey said, it said, I am sorry or I am not sorry. And he had to basically choose one. And that does not allow him in here. And as we can see it here, you can see those two boxes there. It only gives him two avenues. Both avenues indicate guilt. Right. Neither yeah. one of them advocates for his innocence. I and, promise and, I will never do this again. This is uh, unbelievable. This is crazy. I, I, I cannot believe that anything associated with this investigator or that defense. Yeah. Att- but at this point, it, he's like so screwed because the investigator and the defense attorney, Len Kuczynski, gave this information right. yeah. over to the state. Right. And, and, and this is not a, this is not a survey that you that I've ever seen. First of all, no, um, and that you would typically see that a, a defense attorney even carrying or you yeah. know touching for that matter. Um, and I think it's just preposterous that this happened. And what happened after this? Um, he actually, the, what you actually just saw up there on the screen was his actual confession when he was coming out uh, during that process in which he confessed and told the same story, which actually matched up perfectly what which we excuse me what he had previously told actually what happened and so that was as you can see there on the screen now that's what he wrote after he wrote this statement here um mr o'kelly who was the investigator he made him essentially trash that statement he told him you know are you ready to tell the truth if you want us to help you you're going to have to tell the truth and so he made this kid write another confession and at this time he tried to corroborate this confession with what he had told the police which was under a debatable um you know coercive environment and so after this immediately after this he made him draw on a diagram and, and he didn't just let him draw while he was drawing on a diagram he told him hey, right right draw her right here handcuffed to the bed you know draw her right here in this position or how this happened and right after that what did he do he called, called Kaczynski. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Uh, Mr. O'Kelly, he yeah. called Kaczynski, and he said, oh, and Kaczynski, he asked, how did it go? It went very well. Oh, yeah, it was almost it like high-fiving well. at the end of a sports game. It's crazy. The way they did that. Yeah, and then he awful. called the prosecution and set up an interview, and I think you touched bases on that earlier, uh, excuse me, another interrogation the following day in which his attorney was not present. Purposely right. was not present. Right. Well, he says due to a scheduling conflict, but that this didn't get the attorney disbarred is beyond <laughs> me. Yeah. Because he's still practicing, actually. I'm, like, literally speechless as to what went down with his first public defender and that investigator. I think those two people are absolutely What's scary is that uh, prior to this case, um, what what, what was his public defender's name? Kaczynski. Uh, Kaczynski. He was running for a a judgeship, I believe. Am I correct? And he didn't win. I mean, thank Thank God he didn't win. Thank (laughs) God. Well, I don't know. Where was he more dangerous, you know? I mean... Probably you're right, thank yeah. God, but he probably should have been disbarred, I think, but you know, he was not. Yeah. All right, so uh, jury selection and deliberation. So, with jury selection, obviously, um, jury selection is a very important piece of the process. It's the process in which we call the void dare process, obviously. Um, and it's very important because it's the first time in which a trial attorney gets to make his impression on a jury. It's also important because these are the people who are going to be making a final decision about your case and about your con- your, your client's you know, conviction or not. My first thing is, why were these people 
from Manitowoc at all. Exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's common, especially um, in huge cases, cases that that got that garnered this type of magnitude, especially in a small town, to where you would request that the the trial be moved to a, at least a neighboring county. Um, where, and, uh, and Shaka, you spoke earlier about the statements that were made by the prosecution. As far as I'm concerned, he never had a shot at a fair trial. I don't care what jury pool you got in there from that county. Everybody knew about the Avery's and everybody knew about facts and details of this case that were not admissible. You right. just did because mm-hmm. the the news were talking about all kind of stuff. They brought up all kind of evidence, and so you you know one of the process, one of the big things about jury selection is you want to have a fair and impartial jury. You know there was a lot of pre-trial publicity about this case, but this isn't the first time that's, that's happened. Right. You know this has happened in every time a celebrity faces a trial. You know, we're going to see it if Bill Cosby gets, you know, that far down the road. You know, we saw it with OJ. We saw it with, um, and sometimes you name it, the big cases. They, they get but, moved, like Rodney King was moved to Ventura County. So even... But the biggest question in jury um, selection <laughs> is, the first question is, you know, have you heard about this case? And if it's this big of a case with this much pretrial publicity, everyone in that jury pool has heard about the case, which is why the second follow-up question is more important than the first, which is, have you formed an opinion mm-hmm. about this case? Mm-hmm. And anyone that says yes, then should be knocked off the jury right. um, for being biased. Um well, wasn't it like a hun- out of the first cause. hundred people, like one person was like he might be innocent? So mm-hmm. I didn't understand how they didn't say, "All right, we need to start over with a different pool of people because yeah. well, there's virtually no one in here who's leaving yeah. room yeah. for his innocence." But I mean, there, there's another aspect too that's very important in which they ask you, "Do you know the defendant, or do you have ties with the law enforcement community?" And these are very important questions as well. Obviously, if yeah. you're a prosecutor, and I work for the public defender's office, um, I did, I should say, um, and. And, and to me, those are very important questions. And, and, and what I read was that a juror who left, and his name was uh, Richard Mahler, he made some statements. Um, and he said that, after, and, and this was a juror, he didn't leave early. He left after uh, four hours of deliberation. So he, he was, was in the, the deliberation. He was the one with the family emergency. Had it turned yeah. out yeah. his daughter was in a car accident. Right, right. right. I gotta say one thing about this juror before yeah. you read his yeah, statements. There's something a little bit off about this guy. This is the guy <coughs> who was supposedly like the international rock star or whatever they termed it which in the, he wasn't. which he wasn't. <laughs> and he was the one who, even after he got kicked off the jury, he then like came back during the proceedings and was talking to the family members. Cause I was watching the video. I was like, I was like, wait a second. Wasn't that that kicked off juror? And he's the only one who's done several interviews since then and there's always something that rubs me the wrong way when a juror gets a little too involved in a case even when they're not involved. There was one time that we kicked someone off a jury pool um, before the, you know, during jury selection and then she came back every single day during the trial, watched the trial and sat on the defense side and it was like, that's, that's interesting. Wow. That, that's How do you have scary. so much time in your life that you're that's doing that? So something's scary. a little bit, well, here, just to, yeah, no, I get you. Just I, I as think a for him, to this guy's <laughs> I think for him, it's a little different because, you know, he was, he sat through the entire trial and not just a trial. He sat through a portion of the jury deliberation where they actually had all get garnered a vote. And I'll talk about that in a yeah. second. But one of the things that he stated was that there were two people who were actually related. One was a father of a Manitowoc County Sheriff, mm-hmm. a deputy, and another was a, uh, was a wife 
uh, or excuse me, that juror, his wife worked for the Manitowoc County uh, Clerk's Office. These are conflict of interest, and these people should not have, especially the father of the uh, of the per- of the sheriff. He should not have been on that jury. I don't know if the defense goofed off and let that happen, or if they actually exercised in a judge. You know, or maybe they didn't have any more left. You this know. is where, again, a little bit legal explanation in the show could have benefited viewers because um, there's two types of ways you can kick a juror right. off of a panel. Off of a panel, either for cause or a peremptory challenge. For cause is unlimited, but you have to say these magical words. You have to <laughs> say that I cannot be fair right. and unbiased, and okay. then you get kicked off the jury pool. That's if. The number of people who say that, they get kicked off every time if they say that. But usually what happens is someone comes on the jury pool, like, and they say, oh, you're married to someone who's in the police department. Can you be fair? Oh, oh yes, yes I can. Can you be unbiased? Oh, yes, I can. All the time. Have you made up your mind about this case yet? No, oh, no. no. You can't use a four-cause challenge on that. Challenge. You can use a peremptory mm-hmm. challenge, but you are limited in the number right. of peremptory challenges you can use. Right. And it's set often by judge, but, you know, it can be six per side, eight per side, less, more. Right. And so it may have been the f- case that they had already did, used yeah, their peremptory challenges. Because these defense attorneys, in my mind, his def- Buting and the other guy, yeah, yeah. are rock stars yeah, and yeah, amazing. So I can't imagine right. that they let yeah. that slide right. without and and, and that's my thought, that that is the only way that they should have, you know, that they could have been on this case is if they were just, and, and you just said, uh, you know, there were a hundred people, so they may have just been using those peremptory, preemptory challenges left and right, yeah. you know, and then you get exhausted and you kind of get stuck, you know, and so that is a possibility, of, you know, of Who that they happened. ended up with could have been just the lesser of two evils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, as far as jury, uh, jury selection, I mean, it is definitely an important process. Uh, but I want to go unless you guys have more commentary on that. No, nope, I want to definitely go over to to the end of the trial. Now we just talked about the beginning. We're talking about the deliberation process. Now, obviously, uh, we want to talk about the things that can take place, the evidence that can can be considered. And so, uh, the jury deliberation process has. Um, has some concerns uh, th- that many people bring up, and one of them is the influence that one particular jury could have on a complete, you know, on a whole panel of jurors. Right. So we heard recently from the filmmakers who appeared on the Today Show that a juror reached out to them to say that they witnessed some like bullying, basically, in the deliberation process, right. and that those people who didn't want to vote guilty were sort of trading votes as well. Yeah. Compromise compromise and mm-hmm. and didn't feel that they could say not guilty and not be pushed around by the other and the jurors, jurors. said that they felt that had they gone the other way they would have been discovered pretty easily so they well, were, the, and let me ask you that because it, there was a portion during the trial where um they were coming in to hear the verdict and i remember uh mr kachinsky i believe uh, the defense attorney for uh for stephen avery he told the family listen after this, I want you guys to go home, and I want you guys to look behind you and make sure no one's following you. There aren't any cars behind you because a lot of people are going to be upset. That same thought process may have went on with the jury. Some of these jurors, I mean, what do you guys think the effect of a jury in this type of case where some the defendant is so, um, well I would say, is so well-known, but, but, but so and hated. Right? And you're in so a small vilified. town, so you know that it's going to come out if you somehow you know held the jury to a deadlock or, yeah. So I will say I was surprised um, that one juror who was in for the first four hours did say that the first count the, was, was um, seven. 
I believe, uh, uh, and I have it here, it was seven said innocent, three said guilty, and two were undecided. And usually um, when that first count um, happens, like up to three jurors can be turned. I think there's different statistics on how many jurors it takes to turn the rest of the jury. But that to me was surprising that only three started off guilty and then it ended up with a unanimous Mm -hmm. guilty verdict. And it makes me think like interrogations are, you know, videotaped for minors that they should be in uh, videotaped for adults and perhaps jury deliberations should be videotaped with the protection so that the public doesn't see the face of the jury. Again, this is where, again, I think that um, explaining the law in the show would have um, gone a far way because with jury deliberations, jurors have a lot of leeway to do basically whatever they want without it being called misconduct. There's only a couple instances where, um, like, a trial could be, a verdict could be tossed out because of juror misconduct. If the jurors brought in outside evidence, um, if the jurors conducted their own experiments in the jury room, those are instances. But a lot of times, there's something called jury nullification, where the jurors disregard pretty much everything they heard in trial and then they just, you know, come up with a verdict for for whatever reason. And that's okay. And I don't think that we should be videotaping jury deliberations. I don't I you know I think that have a chilling effect on that sort of open process. Well I mean But is it is there should we be concerned about jurors bullying other jurors? Is that a concern? I mean the thing is I, it's definitely it's, a concern. I won't sit here and say it's not a concern. But listen, we have uh in, you know, I'll go as far as to talk about the constitution. It's not perfect. So we have a system and trust me, I'm all you know me, I'm about tear this tear the system down, <laughs> let's build it back up. But in reality, you know, you have to just state that listen, we have a system, there are going to be concerns, there are going to be mishaps, but we have a system that is pretty good. I definitely say our system is pretty good but there are some things that needs to change it's definitely a concern but I don't know if because of that concern we need to turn over and actually videotape um, inside the room. And that's why jury selection is often the most important part of the entire case because you can tell who the jurors are and what their behaviors are, are going to be like back in that deliberation room basically when you're doing voir dire you mm-hmm. know a lot of times the prosecutors in the DA's office, you, when we were doing jury selection, we could tell, okay, that's a strong personality. Right. I don't know if I want that strong personality in the room right. because he seems like he won't go our way and he seems like he could sway everyone else. You can tell that in jury selection, who the strong personalities are, who the weaker personalities are, whether you want that, what you don't want. Um, yep. And so I think bullying is okay. I don't think it was, you know, threats like, I'm going to shoot you if you don't vote this way. Right, but right. I think it was, you know, strong arming, like, come on, we've been here for 24 hours already, make the right decision. And, you know, that's part of the jury process. Yeah. And yeah. that's yeah. okay. Yeah. But I think in a case like this, when you, if you're faced with, well, do you want to go and face the man talk public? And I'm going to make sure that they know that you, you are the one that led to this verdict that no one wants. Or you, or you led to a mistrial. Or you led to a mistrial. Right. I think that's where you start to have like real threats of your safety and your family and I think that goes over the line and I think that's what that juror is essentially alleging. Uh, right, and and that is a cause of concern for me. Yeah. One of the but things that's that why also there's read. also safeguards in place to ensure that um, a juror's identity right. is not revealed, which is why it shouldn't well, be right. videotaped. But you know, a lot of these big cases in downtown LA, the jurors decide and then there's the press right outside the courtroom and they get taken 
back um, but under the in under the judges' chamber right. uh, in the judges' chambers to an elevator um, to escape the public eye, to escape the media. And a lot of times, these jurors' identities, their faces, their names certainly are never revealed unless they want it to be revealed. Well, well yeah. this, this juror didn't specify, but the juror said for some reason that it would be almost easy to identify that they were the one that were, were the, was the holdout. Yeah, and they never specified why. You know, that's we don't they, live in a small town. We live yeah. in Los Angeles, yeah. so I so think that's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's yeah. a statement that juror made. Yeah, so. you know, but I, I thought one thing was interesting that I that I, that I actually read also, um, and it had to do with the same the same person, uh, Richard Maller, who was that you know that like I stated that uh, juror who left after four hours of deliberation. But he said that he met up, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I did read this, uh, and it was reported um, that he met up with another juror. Um, to go to the movies or have a drink or something. He asked that juror, um, what was the reason uh, you guys want to know? Why did you guys vote guilty? And this, he didn't say anything about the evidence. Evidence, I believe the statement was, just think about all the things he did when he was younger. And that's a huge problem because that's exactly what we're talking about, the stuff that you're considering. Uh, you're not supposed to be considering anything that did not come into evidence. And that tells you, first of all, these jurors had information that they, you know, we wouldn't have wanted them to have. But at the same time, you can't vet them from having anything in this and there was so yeah. much pre-trial so publicity much pre-trial. here yeah. that so much of Stephen right. Avery's past was in the jurors' minds. But it's so concerning that that that, that could have actually been the reason. And you mentioned also about them trading, trading votes. One of the other things that I read was that in the process of trading those votes, it was like, okay, if I vote guilty... I'll, uh, if you vote guilty, I'll vote not guilty for the mutilating the body. And they had, and and I also read that, and the reason for for them doing that, she's like, let me get that, let me get that, right? The, I also read that the reason for them doing that was so that on appeal, that the court could actually look at it and say, of course, let's give him a new trial. I don't know how accurate that is also, and the chances of that happening, obviously, is slim to none, so I don't know why that thought process was there. That reminds me of something else, and another reason why it is so important for the public to be informed about the justice system is I think a lot of times jurors think, oh, well, if we get him off on one count, his sentence won't be as bad. And it's like, as long as you convict him of the murder... Then nothing else matters. matters. And I don't think jurors really understand that or understand the effect of it. And so it is inconsistent that they, um, you know, said he was guilty of the murder and not of the mutilation. Um, And I think in their minds they were trying to um, help. But it ended up with the same circumstance, and I think that's because people aren't educated about the effects of it, which is why I think programs like this do go a long way. Um, but I do want to talk about the next topic. You yeah. said that, you know, the juror didn't at all consider the physical evidence. So let's talk about the physical evidence. Mm-hmm. There were, <coughs> you know, three main pieces of physical evidence. Her bones that were found um, outside of his trailer, the blood in her car, and the car keys in his bedroom. The main one I want to gripe about is <laughs> is the blood and gripe yeah. about both ways. So the defense made a big issue of the fact that there was a pinprick in the blood vial, which they said meant that someone, fr- that the government framed him, law enforcement framed him because they, you know, extracted the blood from that first case and then they dropped it in the car. They, 
it wasn't explained, and I've since read that um, the prosecution was considering calling <coughs> the prison nurse back in the you know eighties when he was first um, taken to prison for the Penny Bernstein assault. That it was commonplace to when you take someone's blood, she took his blood in the prison, and then it was commonplace the way that you put it in the vial is through, like, a needle. And that's why the pinprick was there. And um, Ken Kratz ended up not calling her because he thought that they that the defense didn't go far enough in, like, really validating that theory, that he didn't feel it was necessary. And then also they made a big deal of the fact that the tape was cut around the box, but then it was later explained that um, in his post-conviction from the first case, both sides were there when the, when the tape was cut. Mm. And so it's they didn't really explain that. But then the other thing that bothered me was on um, the prosecution side, they were allowed to have this expert witness come in and testify about this EDTA test. EDTA is like a preservative that showed that would have shown that the blood came from this vial because that vial had that preservative in it. And if that preservative was in the blood that was in her car, then that meant it came from the vial. Yeah. And it really bothered me that that expert witness was allowed to testify and that the filmmakers didn't really explain the law behind it. So basically when there is a scientific experiment um, that is being considered as evidence, the judge as the gatekeeper decides what evidence does and doesn't come in. And there's certain laws and rules for the judge to decide whether that scientific evidence can come in on a federal level and federal cases is called the Daubert standard. Um, I may be pronouncing it wrong, Daubert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, basically there's several factors a judge looks at. He looks at um, uh, whether the theory or technique is testable, whether it's been subjected to peer review and publication, the known or potential error rate, the existence mm-hmm. and maintenance of standards and controls concerning its operation, the degree to which the theory and technique is generally accepted yeah. by a relevant scientific community. In, right. ca- in California, the only thing that matters under this Kelly whether Fry standard that we use is whether it's generally accepted in the scientific community. Right. Right. This so, EDTA test was so brand new that there's no way that it was generally accepted by the scientific community. So in most jurisdictions... Which means in most jurisdictions, would not have been this EDTA test would not have come in. Yeah, you guys are jumping the yeah. gun. We're all so upset about <laughs> this, you know? And so I think that we have it to understand bothers Wisconsin's me that that EDTA yeah. test came in. The Wisconsin rule, apparently, they don't follow right. any of these right. standards. They just, have, they just have a general relevancy. So if the test is generally relevant to an issue in the case, yeah. they let it in and, and see, let the but, jury but decide. that still should not come in because of, and I'll, I'll, and I'll just use the federal number, which is the 403, that this is, this is so heavily prejudicial if it's inaccurate that the defense, you can't recover from that. You know, because these are not relied upon, that's why I don't even care. That re- relevance standard that they're using is horrific. Um, because if the if the if the community, the medical community or scientific community is not utilizing this and does not rely on this, does not consider this to be sufficient, it should not come into evidence. And this is highly prejudicial. Yeah. yeah and you I said, agree. you know, four hundred three. So there's a balancing test judges mm-hmm. do. You know, if it is it relevant, well, you have to balance whether that testimony or evidence is relevant against its prejudicial effect. And so I think that the judge 
uh, I think his name was Fox here, um, as gatekeeper, you know, should not have let that EDTA test come in. But under the right. Wisconsin, the general relevancy, he had to. But again, yeah. but yeah. The, what BJ's saying is that you still have to weigh that against For the prejudicial yeah. effect, mm-hmm. even even without these tests that Wisconsin doesn't follow. Um, so I think that that was a problem. And, you know, just to touch bases, too, I don't know how much I agree, because at least with the research that I've done and and, and obviously with the show uh, showed about that pen going into a vial, from my understanding, that is not standard practice. And and, and what I actually read showed, you know, was converse to um, that statement that was that she made. uh, I forget her name. This prison nurse. Yeah. Because far and and to me, it's actually it's converse to common knowledge because it almost taints evidence. It taints that blood who's going to be sitting in a particular place because now you put air, you put a a, a area for air to transpire, to travel into the valve. And it's just it just doesn't even make sense. That would be standard practice. But you see the hole. But the the thing is actually sealed. Uh, they're saying the hole is from the initial draw that there's a needle that there's a needle into the patient and then there's another needle that goes directly into the vial. So from the initial draw is where they're saying the hole is Like from. as opposed to opening it up and pouring his blood in, they it, it the prison nurse it. Um, took it from him and then to in, put it in to, to the vial, yeah. to insert it without it being contaminated. Um, so it seals. But what now, was more if trouble, that is uh, the standard practice, and I know we talked I've about earlier, before, yeah. if we talked earlier about um, about you know some of the the filmmakers and some of the stuff they yeah. should have added and should have added. If that is a standard practice, but again, I'm not a you know I'm not a science major or anything like that. I don't know. Uh, but if that is a standard practice, then that's a travesty that this film depicted that in a way. Because as far as I'm concerned, well, um, it made it look very damaging. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they may not have known that because they probably didn't go to look at all the other vials. But what was more telling to me was that the seal was broken and that there was no chain of custody. There, every time that seal is broken, there's supposed there to, to be. be but then later on, I've read articles <laughs> that said that it was in his um, post-conviction for the first case that the seal was broken, that both sides were present when the seal was broken. But even when that happened, it's supposed to be documented. Yeah. And so there was no documentation of such and no one actually wasn't portrayed, you know. What also bothered me with a lot of the portrayals, you know, during the testimony of all this physical evidence, all the DNA evidence, um, I don't know if you guys noticed and maybe only attorneys would notice, but they mainly just showed or at least started by showing um, video clips from the cross-examination and not the direct examination uh, by the prosecutor. It was like clips from the cross-examination and so it was, and a lot of it was out of context and also I don't think we're watching it like in one episode we're seeing all this testimony about you know the blood and the keys and the DNA evidence. The way it really came out was over several weeks, over a several week right. trial, where first the prosecution puts on their witnesses, right. and then maybe weeks later the defense puts on their witnesses. And so a lot of times for a juror following it, it's not as clear cut because, you know, they're listening to testimony one week and then weeks later they're hearing the other side. Right. And so I think that, um, what may have been like an oh my god moment to us, wasn't so impactful to the jury as it truly played out. And and we're watching this like on Netflix as opposed to those moments where they might have been sleeping or as a juror like some of this stuff is boring to them. They don't understand it so we tend to you miss that. I mean the one major reason why the O.J. Simpson case turned out the way it did is because the DNA evidence was like so new and so boring that you know it took a long time to explain it. It A lot of it got lost and that case is just one example example that even where there's DNA evidence, right. you know, that, that doesn't one, necessarily mean that there's going
going to be a guilty but verdict. The, but yeah. in that case, and I didn't know this, Polly, because I was in seventh grade and didn't understand this, but there was EDTA found in some of the blood in the OJ case. So yeah. that's one of the major differences in these two cases. I don't want, we can go way too <laughs> down that road. <laughs> that's that's a different video. after show. Yeah. Stay right. tuned. Yeah. Right. I'm shocked that you're on that, one. OJ I'm on that one. Catch us next right. week. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That sounds good. But I also, the, 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 the DNA that matched on the on the bullet that was supposedly a match with, but that was shouldn't have been inconclusive because it was tampered or it was contaminated with the testers uh, or the uh, chemist's oh. own DNA. And then she redoes it again. Well, yeah. she couldn't redo it again because it was, was only exhausted. enough yeah. for one sample. Right. And so the fact that the protocol required that test to come out inconclusive, but she said it was a match to Teresa's DNA was shocking to me because if, if it's, it's the scientific protocol to require that it's, it's inconclusive, it was contaminated. How did that get in in the first place? They did it. I mean, probably it was allowed in with the same general relevancy rule. They let the jury decide, but I think in most other jurisdictions, it would not have come in because the test Determination was inconclusive. Why do the jury need to hear about this at all if the test is inconclusive? I also think the defense attorneys there did a very good job of impeaching her credibility on the stand. It was great. So I don't know how much. That's why that juror, when he said, oh, it wasn't the physical evidence, I think that the defense attorneys did a very good job of. showing the jurors that some of this, you know, gotcha physical evidence wasn't as strong. And that, it shouldn't be given as strong weight uh, as it. That might have played, actually, now I think now that you made that statement, that might have played more in their favor to have her on the stand so that you can actually create that or, or plant more seeds in a juror's mind that this is a setup exactly. and that the prosecution is overreaching here. Yeah. You know, the fact that she was told to, you know, t- it, it, their language was like connect him to, to the, the house, right. to the house, right. tie him to the house, you know, whatever. Um, I think that help only goes to help yeah. their theory of, yeah. um, you know, law enforcement framing. Um, that's why I want to talk about, you know, my next subject, which is really the elephant in the room in this show, is the theory that law enforcement framed Stephen Avery. That was the defense. Yeah. And I have one... <coughs> Comment. I want to get your opinion on. I was thinking this whole time that, you know, this trial took place not so long ago. It was um, 2006. But I do think that so much has happened in the last 10 years, especially in the last couple years with um, Black Lives Matters and a lot of cases that I think, especially in major cities, not necessarily in Manitowoc, but in major cities, I think that um, a defense that law enforcement framed a defendant would be better taken at this time and in a major city. I mean, that was basically a defense in the OJ case, you know. Um, and so I think that had this not been such a small town and had this been today, then Stephen Avery may not be behind bars yeah. because I think jurors would be able to believe it more. But this happened at a time when, you know, a lot of these issues weren't at the forefront of media and also in a small town where people didn't want to believe that law enforcement could do such I a mean, thing. I mean, this show itself it probably wouldn't even be big if, if it wasn't for the day and age. And I agree with right. you. But if it like this show wouldn't age, have been as big if it, it aired yeah. three years I ago. Right. I agree. I think it's harder today to, to believe the cops are framing because now I want to see all the video evidence. I want to see some text messages. I want to, I, I feel like in a bigger city it's more difficult because it requires so much coordination. 
to me, it was completely believable because it was a small town. There was very little oversight. A bigger city, I start to think, well, man, you're going to have to get a lot of players involved to really frame this guy. But here, it was only like you only need three or four people. I and think it's the good. opposite. They said though. two, right? Lank and Colburn yeah. could have done it by themselves. By themselves. Exactly. Right. <laughs> But I, I think, I mean, my perspective is that it's actually the opposite. I think as today, today's a, a day, and as excuse me, in today's age, um, more people are privy to this information. More people are aware. More people are open to these possibilities. Whereas ten years ago, you know, people didn't want to hear it. They didn't care. They yeah. weren't concerned. Right. It wasn't now, in their now faces. Now that cell phone footage videos, have yeah. come out to show that law enforcement isn't doing didn't do things the way they said they did and you know we see somebody who's running away from an officer right. getting shot when the officer says they were coming but I think we're still in a very visual age where we're like well I want to see the video so but I think the reach, I, want to see I the think video. it's about the reach yeah. of people now especially when we talk about big city the reach of people whose mental capacities have opened up now to this yeah. as a possibility is far greater than it was 10 years ago or even 5 years ago before all of this happened. I think that's what we're talking about really, is that reach of people. I agree, and I think that's one reason why this show ended up doing so well, is people really did take on to this theory that law enforcement framed this man. Right. Or at least was what, not, uh, didn't do things correctly. Like, whether or not people believe he's guilty or not, I think it's pretty um, agreeable to most people that Manitowoc Sheriff Department have should have had nothing to do with this once Stephen Avery was on the radar. And they even came out and said Manitowoc sheriffs are going to have very little to do with it. They're only going to assist Calumet County in doing the investigation. But that didn't happen. Yeah, I think it had a lot to do with how the documentary was presented. Even if he did it, it, they clearly framed him from the documentary. Like, even if he did it, they they took steps to make sure he was caught. Right. And so that, to Mm -hmm. me, was, like, not an issue from the documentary. They definitely took affirmative steps to plant evidence that was not there. And so that I have I have no doubt based on what I saw. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think a, a couple questions we got on Twitter were questions that are beyond our being able to answer. We're here to explain the law. I'm not here to explain how those keys got there. You know, <laughs> like, there's a lot of there's it, a lot of unanswered yeah. questions but here. But it is yeah. but, incredibly suspicious yeah. that the key was found, what, like on the seventh search when only yeah. Lanker Colborne was there and their babysitter sheriff from Calumet County was and not there. The, and why there's some of her bones were, you know, miles barnyard. away. Yeah. Um, you know, so... And, and the, the internet did a little sleuthing after this and they they found that key. She had it on a several rolls of keys. She had it on a keychain, and they're saying, "Why was it now found as and a single as key. a yeah. single key right there?" Interesting. A yeah. lot of really great questions raised, and I think that this makes it very obvious that whenever there's a conflict of interest, that police department, that agency, should not be involved in the investigation, and anything that is discovered by that agency should be yeah. tossed as you know, fruit of a poisonous tree, so to right. speak. And they were fully involved from, from the get-go. So I, I, I don't know if there's some, I guess it would be, you know, the, the FBI or the Attorney General's office that would look at the conduct of the Sheriff's Department. Yeah. But we know that when they looked at the conduct of the Sheriff's Department way back in the first case, that they found that nothing had been yeah. done wrong. So there's it's very difficult to put faith in that part of the system. And I think a, a little bit about the blood that you're talking about, where was it found? It was found in that car. 
And, and a little teeny tiny thing. And this hor- horrific, you know, slicing and shooting, and there was no blood splatter anywhere. That is not teeny and, at and, all. And we know when the car... That's a huge factor. And right we there. have the sheriff calling about the car before they found yeah. the car. Right. Yeah. He calls in the license plate yeah. and is able to identify the model that was Colborn yeah. who did that. But, I, but I want to talk about that. I, I want to talk about that blood splatter. Because or the lack it, thereof. Or yeah. the lack thereof, right. Because... You know, I talked about the confession of Brennan Dassey, and like we heard, oh, we cut her throat. You know, we punched her. We shot her in the head. How was there not blood everywhere? And people are like, oh, well, but he bleached it. But you'd be able to test for bleach. But but you're going to tell. I mean, let's just think this out. This guy had, and they stated a a number of these things on a documentary, or excuse me, on a series. Um, This guy had this thing where he could have crushed the vehicle, right? So you're telling me this guy took so much time to bleach this out and orchestrate all this stuff, but he leaves little things like, uh, and they did a good good job with the glove and how, you know, with the scar and everything or detailing how that just was impossible. But you're telling me he left smears in the car and he just left the car sitting there for somebody to just come find. Some of these things just do not make sense to me from an evidential perspective. It just don't make sense. Which is a testament to the defense to the job of Jerry Buting and Dean Strang, um, these defense attorneys, the fact that we're all here questioning all this, did do a very a good job, job. Yeah. to put doubt in all of our minds right. as viewers. Obviously, they didn't succeed in the panel with the jury panel, but they did with a lot of viewers. Right. Um, so, do you think the key should have been allowed in because it was discovered by Manitowoc sheriffs? No, no, I, yeah, absolutely. I think there was a clear but conflict does of the interest. Defendants, does the defense then want it in because it goes to further their theory that law enforcement framed him? So you know, evidence. There's two sides to every yeah. story. Well, well, if the I key think, wasn't in, but then the defense couldn't, you know, bolster their theory well, that they put it there. I think there's pieces of evidence. Some evidence, yeah. Even if that's the theory, I would rather do away with that theory and exclude all the evidence. Yeah. If because that's the case. let's get rid the of that. The defense attorney said no. No attorney wants to have a case the police framed you don't. my yeah. client. So uh, the if the key evidence. was not involved, yeah. then they would not have had to go with that theory. Yeah. But it was the only thing that could explain why it got there. And it was shaken and it was under slippers. Like, how does that happen if it falls straight? Some really valid questions were were raised. I, yeah, I, I think if there's any less in. evidence tying your defendant to the physical act of the crime, I think you want the less evidence. You know, you don't want to use that as a part of your theory of the framing. You, you, you want to work with as little of that as possible. To, yeah, to create yeah. I mean, I think it's relative to the piece of evidence, but I agree in general, you know, I, I want that excluded. I definitely want that excluded. And I, I didn't understand why, even though the trial was held in Calumet County, why all the jurors were from Manitowoc. Why, I don't know how big of a difference it would have made um, if they had had jurors from well, Calumet, because uh, Teresa Halbach herself was from Calumet County, so I don't know if that would have made a big difference. Well, at least two of them might not have had a relationship to the sheriff's department and to the clerk of court, so that. And I, as far as I know, you know, friend that I have that is uh, a prosecutor or what former prosecutor, present attorney general. That if that was her case, she would have understood that somebody wanted to move it to another county, conceivably somewhere else, like across the state. Exactly. And, and another measure that can be taken is jury sequestration, <laughs> which is during the duration of the trial, right. the jurors are not allowed to see their families, and so that's a step that judges don't make that decision lightly, um, but, you know, it... it it seeks to ensure that they're not getting outside information, and that was not done here. They were only sequestered during the deliberation period. Right. I... I, I I think that should have been. Yeah. I agree. Done. I agree. I mean, especially when you see um, the, the the prosecutors 
going on record, or excuse me, not on record, but in the media making all of these statements, revealing all kind of information and yeah. facts about the case and the matter. It's just, they continue yeah. to Yeah, speaking of picture. attorney ethics, Mari's going to uh, intro that one as well, because I think that goes nicely, in segues nicely into that conversation. And I think we've talked several times already in this <laughs> show about Ken Kratz's press conference that he gave after Brendan Dassey's confession, where he, like, basically repeats the confession word for word right. in every brutal and graphic detail. And almost in his face, my my husband kept saying, is, is something's weird with this guy. He's like it's, he's like taking joy in this yes. or something. Like, holy, really something's that. off with he this really guy. Yeah. Um, you know, besides that he's sexting, you know, his domestic victims. violence victims. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I do want to explain <laughs> another thing. There are attorneys are held to a code of ethics. We are all admitted to the state bar, and the state bar, when we do something wrong, we report to the state bar. And there's something called the model rules of professional responsibility. We all have to learn these before we, twice. We, we have to learn these. A test on these. A, a test yeah. just on ethics before we take the bar, and then again, we have to repeat them again on the bar. And yeah. I don't know where Ken Kratz was during these <laughs> law school lessons about oh professional God. responsibility, <laughs> but one of them says, um, a prosecutor should not make or authorize the making of an extrajudicial statement that a reasonable person would expect to be disseminated by means of public communication if the prosecutor knows or reasonably should know that it will have a substantial likelihood (coughs) of prejudicing a criminal proceeding. His press conference, which was obviously disseminated to the public, um, was so prejudicial to Stephen Avery's case and Brendan Dassey's case that it's shocking to me um, you know, that he thought it was okay to make to do to make such statements. But you know what's interesting is um the silver fox they call in the show, the reporter, uh one of the on air reporters, he then went to law school and I read an interview with him and he said the problem was that Ken Kratz was the same person to write up the criminal complaint and that prosecutors are allowed to talk about whatever's in the public record. So he took from that confession verbatim almost in the criminal complaint, which was then a public record, which allowed him to make these statements. Because there was a complaint to the ethics about Ken Kratz, and they said he hadn't done anything wrong. Now, looking back, Ken Kratz regrets having held that press conference, or so he says, not because he says he did anything wrong, professionally, but because of the criticism that he received. But most legal analysts look at it and very obviously say he should not have done that. It definitely looks like it was crossing the line, and that is like a sheer technicality that saved him from facing... I I, I would say disbarment, but I doubt that they would have gone that far. Yeah, because he put everything from that confession in the criminal complaint, which became public record, that protected him. Because if it's public record, he's allowed to say it. But then the jury never heard those things. The Stephen Avery jury did not hear those things. Yeah. They had been tainted by it. So, you know, the, the prosecutor's not supposed to be making statements that they, you know, show guilt or innocence or about the physical information, the evidence that's going to be shown. Um, highly, highly inappropriate that he made these statements. I want to also talk about one other thing when it comes to attorney ethics. Um, there's something, there's a case called Brady versus Maryland. All prosecutors know it because it means, it stands for the fact that prosecutors, if they have exculpating information, information or evidence pointing to that defendant's innocence, then they need to share that with the defense. And all prosecutors 
whatever the state, even in Wisconsin, have to abide by this. Um, And especially in the first case, the Penny Bernstein case, it sounds like they had information pointing to Stephen Avery's innocence um, and right. pointing You're to... talking about the phone call that yeah. Colborn received? But that was years later, but even when they were first that, building up that case oh, against him, they had information pointing to his innocence and pointing to the fact that other people could have done this. Um, and I just wanted to talk about Brady only because a lot of viewers don't know about it and I don't know. Do you think that there were violations here? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't. I didn't see a violation of the Brady mm-hmm. rule within the second, within the second case. Because there well, was nothing in the second case that was so clearly pointed to someone else right. doing they were sitting, it. Right. Because well, they didn't investigate anyone else. Yeah. Right. Technically, yeah. the what it looks like if they're setting him up, there yeah. would be no exculpatory evidence. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> plan it. We're gonna deliver it. But I, yeah. I think that where there was a violation of the Brady rule, you've already addressed. And I think that uh, you know, I, I can't say for certain that it was because it was so many years down the line. And I think that was the point that I was talking about. But the initial when process. Colburn got the phone, phone call, call that yeah. the other man right. who was in prison for something else, um, you know, confessed. And they, they knew that he's the one who did it, Greg right. something. Um, I mean, to my knowledge. At that point, even though the prosecutor who may have prosecuted um, Stephen Avery could have ago. been long gone, the prosecutor's office as a whole has the duty to Turn that over. Turn that right. over. Right. Right. So speaking of ethics, we definitely need to talk about Len Kaczynski. This was Brendan's first public defender. I, uh, we almost are speechless, right, about the I level of no incompetency? I how he was not... He says, at least, at, like, disbarred, yes, but at least, like, any step up to disbarment. You could be suspended. You should, you could be forced to take, and you take, and, you know, more legal education classes, more ethics classes, have to take the exam again for ethics. Like, the fact that he wasn't, he didn't have to Such do a anything. To that client, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, the big one that he actually violated was, uh, and you talked about our, you know, the, 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 our codes of ethics, is his duty of loyalty. And all of us clients, excuse me, all of us attorneys, we have a duty of loyalty to each and every one of our clients that we have to make sure we're advocating um, to, you know, to the benefit of our client. And clearly, um, time after time, where, you know, he comes out and st- he states in the media, excuse me, in the media, you know, that we're, if I'm correct, that we're considering a plea agreement. Well, first of all, you know, that shouldn't be stated because, the, you know, j- if jurors hear that, they're automatically going to assume, yeah. listen, even though we don't understand, you know, that, a plea does not necessarily mean that you're guilty. You might just be taking, you, you might just be going with your odds in that situation. But a jury or somebody who's a potential juror, when they hear that, they're automatically, like you stated, are going to think guilt. And I think that was a first mishap that he had. Not to mention, you know, everything else that continued to happen. Uh, I, the I don't understand. They, why hire this investigator? To that act? investigator clearly had yeah. it out for the Avery family yeah. and. Uh, that investigator is the, his actions are completely shocking to me, even almost more so than that defense attorney. So, so I don't understand why the defense attorney hired him to do this. We supposed well, to hire him to do a polygraph. Well, well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that as attorneys, prosecutors, defense, we're all friends. We, you end up you kind of work with each other in a long time in a small community. Even if in, in a big city, you have a small community of attorneys you work with, so you do know everyone. And it just makes me think that. Maybe he and Ken were friends, and he wanted to wrap this up for Ken because he believed he was guilty, and just a matter of just kind of you know crossing those T's and dotting those I's. But that's where Ken has the greater duty 
of the two to make sure I don't care what you're trying to do. Yeah. My my client said he's innocent. Let's entertain at, at the very least. Oh, yeah. Entertain the fact that he may actually be innocent and let's consider this. He did not once consider it. In fact, when he called and we mentioned this earlier, when he called uh, Mr. Kaczynski and told him we're done, you know, and we, we you got clearly it. He did we well. got it. You clearly know what he wanted in yeah. the process. And that it that's went what, very well. That's what he should have been doing. But you know, a lot of people go why motive and so just kind of explaining that these guys were probably friends they definitely knew each other and they're in a small town so right that happens i do want to make one comment because when my husband and i were watching he said um but but brendan told him he's innocent brendan told his attorney he's innocent and i was like well pretty much every defendant tells their defense attorney they're innocent that's not what bothers me what bothers me is it doesn't matter what brendan told him he has a job and his job is to advocate for his client and advocate for his defense so it doesn't matter to me that brendan told him he was innocent that wasn't so like shocking to me it what mattered to me was that he you know talked in the public about the plea bargain he was pushing the plea bargain so much he hired this investigator to get another damning confession out of his client he didn't he wasn't present right. when investigators um, questioned him. Questioned him. All of that is wrong to me. But I just want to clear because, you know, he, Brendan telling him I'm innocent doesn't doesn't right. bother me as yeah. much. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, although it was interesting that he partook in the series. He was interviewed and... Yeah. Um, you I know. think he was clueless as to how he was going to be <laughs> to portrayed. Be yeah. <laughs> and I, I do... The only reason I would feel bad for the guy is because I do hear that there were like death threats against him since the show came out because... Mm-hmm. And now he... And nobody deserves that. He, uh, he's come out to say that he would have recused himself before the trial anyways. For what? I, I, I don't know. That's what I... Before the, the trial, he was trying to make sure that there was it, no trial. It, and it seemed from the show that, that he was trying to stay on it. Yeah. And he was trying to say that Brendan's mother was like this pit bull who like, wasn't allowing him to do his job. Well, well, I mean, let's just be let's Since we're talking about legal, as a lawyer, you can't simply just recuse yourself from a trial once you have a client. You can't just simply get up and walk away. The judge has to approve of that, Maybe. and it has to be a conflict of interest. Yeah, it has to be agree. something between an ir- irreconcilable difference between you and the client. You can't just get up and say, hey, I don't want to take this case anymore. Yeah. You know what else surprised me is um, when a defendant doesn't want to have their public defender anymore, it's called a Marsden motion, at least in California, and normally, the only people present for the Marsden motion are the defendant, the attorney, and the judge. The prosecution isn't even allowed to be in there, let alone the public and the cameras. Right, so yeah. it was really surprising was to, to me that, that when um, Brendan, you know, had this motion to make sure that Len was no longer his attorney, that that was all videotaped. Right. That was really odd to me. Yeah, I agree. And one other odd legal thing that I want to get to before, I think the biggest issue is if Stephen didn't do it, who, who did? did? <laughs> um, is is we got this question on Twitter, and this was one of something that struck me as well when I was watching was in Stephen Avery's appeal, the judge who reviewed the trial record for error was the trial judge right. himself. Right. How yeah. could someone who did put on the trial review his own record That's for error? Normal. And I worked for the Court of Appeal in California, and it's 
normally, at least in California, it's a panel of three appellate judges who review the trial judge's record for error. And the fact that the trial judge was the same person playing both roles is very strange to me. I think it it definitely was a conflict of interest there, for sure. But I I don't know if, and I don't have any background, and so obviously I'm taking you guys' opinion on this. You guys let me know. Um, Now, was there a situation where he moved to from the district or you know even he if he moved up court? from trial judge to appellate right. court then he, he shouldn't, shouldn't be, be the one reviewing his yeah, own record because there's a lot of times in California in Los Angeles where the trial judge gets moved up to the appellate right. court but they recuse himself exactly from any case where there's potential bias let alone you know any case where it's like oh I have a family member or oh I know too much about this case or right. whatever it is let alone the fact that you're reviewing your yeah. own record for appeal makes no sense so yes right. he could have then been bumped up to the to be an appellate judge mm-hmm. by the time you know it came around for appeal, but the fact that he, as a single person, was reviewing that record but, is bizarre. And maybe something special about Wisconsin that none of us know, because as far as I know, none yeah. of us are licensed in Wisconsin. Right. So right. So I, I mean, but I think that it still shows whether whether it's allowed in Wisconsin or not. Um, it still shows a mishap in the justice. Yeah, that system. almost nullifies the appeal process. Yeah, yeah. It, I agree. I completely agree. So on to um, who did it, if yeah. it wasn't Stephen Avery. <laughs> well, we, we have several theories about that. Um, one I kind of like was Scott Tadich and Bobby Dassey. Um, Scott Tadich was the stepfather of Bobby and Brendan. Um, and the interesting thing about Scott and Bobby are they are each other's alibis. So Scott says um, he sees Teresa taking picks, 230, She's gone by three. He goes down the road, and that's when he sees Bobby Dassey flying by him in the opposite direction. And Bobby Dassey says he sees Scott Tadgett going the other way. However, we have a school bus driver that says she saw um, Teresa taking pictures around 3.30 p.m. Another thing, Scott Tadgett um, claimed those flat fires by the burn barrel were three feet high. And now he claims they're ten feet high. Yeah. Um, and people are saying that um, when Scott was questioned, he was very nervous. Um, he tried to sell a twenty two caliber rifle um, after, after um, Hobbock's disappearance. Um, and Bobby Dassey had back scratches, but he attributed that to a puppy. Right. Um, and it was Barb's van. So Barb is dating Scott Tadich, or um, is the, the wife of Scott Tadich. And it was Barb's van that they were trying to sell. So Scott knew that Steve was calling Auto Trader to take pictures of the van, and he knew that it was going to be Teresa Halbeck because she was the only one that took pictures when Auto Trader came by. So he had that kind of knowledge. Um, and he also mentioned to the police, or no, he mentioned to a couple of friends that his stepson had some blood on his clothes that were in his laundry with his clothes mm-hmm. together, almost setting up just in case something were to get, yeah. you know. So, so n- not all of these series have just come out post-trial. Yeah. They were these series during trial, and Stephen's defense tried to present them yeah. to the judge, but the judge didn't let them in. He was not allowed to name anybody else who could have had third-party liability or name other person who could have done it. He was only allowed to name Brendan Dassey. And there's a there's a test in Wisconsin about <coughs> whether a defense mm-hmm. can present an alternative name. So the test under Wisconsin law is when a defendant seeks to present evidence that a third party committed the crime for which the defendant is being tried, the defendant must show a legitimate tendency that the third party committed the crime. In other words, so. that the third party had motive, opportunity, opportunity and a direct, direct connection to the case. And this isn't unique to Wisconsin law. Every state has a third-party culpability, third-party liability rule in place that basically says you can't just 
name somebody you, out of thin air. You can't just come in and your defense, the defense is always someone else did it. But you can't n- start naming other people without right. any corroborating evidence. In California, you have to have corroborating right. evidence that someone else did it, um, which makes sense, which should be the rule, which should be the law. You can't just say, oh, someone else did it. Oh, oh, my cousin down the street did it be- because, oh, you know, I heard that. There has to be corroborating evidence. And so that is why um, Stephen Avery's defense was not allowed to bring in evidence that um, Scott Tadich or Bobby Dasty did it, but I do think they did a good job, at least in their cross-examination of these witnesses, mm. of without explicitly saying it, at least like implying Absolutely. that they could have been involved in their cross-examination. And the, yeah, none of them were asked for alibis. And well, no, no, they were each other's alibi. Oh, right, that, yeah. but beyond that, nothing was yeah. was corroborated. They they presented as very bizarre witnesses to me. I yeah. didn't believe them at and, all. And, and again, I'm not here to speculate as to what really happened because I don't know. I'm only here to talk about like what, what they, legally they could and couldn't do. And I think it was the right call to not bring in evidence that all these other people did it unless they had clear evidence of motive, opportunity, and but a direct connection. But it's a little tough because or, the police did not investigate exactly, it. So how did. would they have presented that? It's kind of a... And that, that's another well, alternative I mean, theory. We had another guy um, called... There's someone referred to as a German. Um, and so uh, his wife called and said that he had told her that day he was going to the auto salvage. Um, and that he had scratches and he had a little blood on his finger. And later on, he's arrested for disorderly conduct. And when she tells this to the police, they say, sorry, we already have our guy. And so even though she's giving them um, you know, evidence of possibly leading to someone else who's got the scratches, right. who's got yeah. you know, everything consistent with the crime, they, they've turned a blind eye. Yeah. And another one we have is Teresa's um, ex-boyfriend, Ryan Higgis. And he's a little bit more troublesome. On the 31st, he says he dropped something off to her. He can't identify what time of day it was. Not even if it was daylight or dark. dark. Yeah, that's cannot, odd. Cannot. He then says, because now we know that um, her voicemail had been accessed, and it was by him. And he says he guessed the username right. and the what? password, and that's how he got it. Of course, people are thinking he might have deleted something. Um, and he was actually allowed on the property to help lead the search for some of these items. Yeah, he and led up the, the search. So he was bypassing the police, you know, barriers, I, don't, I don't think he... And they allowed he, him to. I don't think he went on Stephen Avery's prop, property. No, yeah, he was on the property. He was, he was able to lead one of the searches and past even, the police. But beyond this, you know, these suggestions, just statistically speaking, when a woman is killed... It's generally somebody she, she knows, knows somebody yeah. close to her, a former lover, yeah. family. Some, so the fact that they that these people were not even treated as people of interest yeah, is bizarre. They didn't even look at it, look at them. And, and sorry, I just want to go back quickly to Scott Tadich. Yeah. The most bizarre thing to me is that his own brother-in-law, who Scott, that's. Stephen Avery is his brother-in-law. Right after the verdict, he told the media, this is, this is the happiest day of my yeah. life or something like his that. Be- That's bizarre. His behavior was bizarre around the whole the whole scenario. And then we have what I thought was the most interesting theory was Edward Wayne Edwards. Have you guys heard of this guy? I have. So, a serial killer? Yeah, so he's a, he's a serial killer. Um, and a, so Teresa Halbeck was killed with a bullet to the left temple and to the back of the head. The the idea is that that's consistent with him having gotten her to pull over and having shot her with a twenty two in the in the, on the left temple if she's driving and the back of the head. She's not reported missing for three days, so he's got three days to do what he wants. And after these three days, it's on the fourth day when the Avery family, except for one member, goes and takes a vacation, and that's when they start to find all this stuff on the Avery's property. Um, and so, this guy had committed some murders in the past, kidnapping, murders. 
and he would, as part of his pathology, frame other people for it. And then he would go to like the funeral, or he would appear in the courtroom. And we have in um, season six, I believe, um, episode six, there's a guy that appears. We have, you know, that's um, that's a known picture of him. And then we have this guy that appears in episode six um, behind the prosecutor, behind Ken Kratz. And there's speculation as to whether or not it is um, Edward Wayne Edwards. And he described prior to um, prior to this how he would dispose of a body, how to blow up a body using a log, using gravel, using um, natural gas. And the belief is that he essentially incinerated um, Teresa Halbeck and removed her remains to Stephen Avery's property because he, Avery at the time was the big draw. He was the big news story. And this is what this guy, his pathology, liked being d- subversive to those news stories. And so they're saying... He killed her and set up Stephen Avery, and you see him in season six because he always tried to appear in um, in in the footage. In the footage, they have footage of him at another boy's funeral where they have identified him, and he's at the boy's funeral. And we have the and they're not able to identify him or identify who it is in season six. And it looks like, and that's him in the background, Edward Wayne Edwards. Interesting. Well, well, it looks like him, and so and no one's been able to identify this man from this episode. There's a little close up of him. I don't know about him, <laughs> but I right. do know that yeah. in Stephen Avery's appeal, he um, named four people who could have done it, and the four people were Scott Tadich, Bobby Dassey, then his brother and his uncle, Earl and Stephen, I believe. Um, oh, not Stephen, and Earl and Chuck. Chuck. Charles, yes. Um, so, yeah. yeah I mean, and, but, and then, but then that would, yeah. that would, from a defense perspective, um, you know, and, and obviously different defense attorneys would, you know, some def- defense attorneys would differ. Uh, but it might not be a great strategy, some would say, to just throw the darts across the board at people like that. Uh, sometimes the, the prosecutor, excuse me, the jury doesn't take well to you just throwing a darts at so many different targets. Yeah. You're just out there just launching right now. But uh, for me, at least with Edward Wayne Edwards, there was a lot of evidence in um, the fact that he shows in this video, at least. But I guess they wouldn't have had that necessarily at the time but then he many of his murders happened on Halloween and he was always he was also aware of the Avery property and he knew that they had a bonfire around that time as well so there were there a lot of things that pointed to the fact that this guy could be the guy so you tell me this guy that was in the background here is that serial murder they no don't one, know no that. one can identify him yet no one, yeah. no one knows who that is um, they've hit up Manitowoc County to figure out if anyone knows it's a small town no one can identify that man but it looks very like, uh, very much like Edward Wayne Edwards. That's interesting. So let's look at um, what's what the future of these cases. What has happened since the documentary wrapped? Well, um, with um, Stephen Avery, he had filed an appeal, and then Kathleen Zellner um, actually just drew back that appeal. She just spoke two days ago about it, and she believes that um, forensic testing is going to set him free. I know some of the EDTA tests now have advanced, so I'm assuming that's where she's going. She's also just bought a Toyota RAV4 that was similar to Teresa Halbeck's. She's doing her own independent testing. So at the very least, it looks like he's going to get some really competent counsel. She's working with Trisha Bushnell of the Midwest Innocence Project as well. Well, Let's talk about that for a second, because a lot of people um, are extremely optimistic, and not that you shouldn't be, uh, but a lot of people are optimistic about Stephen Avery getting free, but um, 
the chances of him getting freed are very slim, actually, at this because point. Because he's worked his he's way up through the, every well, right. well, every, every appeal in Wisconsin, but now it's going to federal because of constitutional well, violations. That's Brendan's case is Brendan's going is, to yes, federal. Yes, yes, she, right. Zellner just pulled Stephen. He had one appeal that was in, she pulled it. So that appeal's been pulled. and Because have, the defense yeah. attorneys at the very end in the last episode have like a roundtable discussion themselves, and they talk about the key to him getting a new trial is if there's some newly new discovered evidence. Evidence. Yeah. So she's trying to get newly discovered evidence yeah. in order to get him a new trial, which would be really the only option for him because he has exhausted every level. It went up right. through the um, the it's appellate court and court. the state supreme mm-hmm. court already. And, you know, a lot of people, after watching the docuseries, petitioned President Obama. I think the number was like 500,000 people oh, had yeah. petitioned Barack Obama, which goes to show that as the general public, we don't really know the legal course well, of appeals. But, you know, this was a state murder, so you know, the, the president only has uh, pardon abilities over federal crimes. So only the governor does. Governor Scott Walker, unfortunately, he came He's out not and said, not going to do it. So. <laughs> There's no way. He did go on record saying absolutely yeah. not. And then with um, relationship to Brendan Dassey, um, he'd filed an appeal in 2010, which was denied. Um, 2013 as well, which was denied. And he has got a third appeal right now, and his lawyer is working with that. She's uh, Laura Nereider of the Bloom Legal Clinic. And, and I also... It's a, it's a, it's a yeah. habeas corpus, yeah, um, right. in federal court. And that is, you need to have due process to... And they're... <coughs> yeah, explain what, to what got it to it to federal court, because there's constitutional issues here, which I think that's what makes Brendan's case unique from Stevens, is there certain constitutional issues, like you said, due process, um, having to do with the coercion yeah. of mm-hmm. the the confession, because you have a right counsel, not yeah. to incriminate yourself, you know, Fifth Amendment, there's a lot of more constitutional issues, like you mentioned, in Brendan's case. And because yeah. there's federal constitution issues implicated, then a federal court would get to review right. that this is outside of what's going on with the state um, appellate which, courts. Yeah, which is any court room proceeding just needs to be outside of Manitow County, needs to be, you know, a lot of oversight and just far beyond what's going on over there. So if Stephen has a very slim chance, Brendan has a, what would you call it? Slightly better, slightly better, but not much, but slightly better. All right. And then, you know, like I mentioned, there's a lot of people that were moved by this and wanted to take action. So the Obama petition, you know, clearly was not the right recourse. What do you suggest to people who are moved by this and want to do something? I think that well, there's there's some good news and bad news. The bad news is that there's very little that any individual can do about Stephen Avery or Brendan Dassey. But we can influence the judicial system, the whole yeah. justice system, by who we vote for, yeah. if we show up to vote at all, if we take jury duty seriously yeah. or not. And, and okay. you know, I hate to say that that is... Um, what you know, this film is, is bringing light of obviously the, the inadequacies in the justice system, but in terms of what it is set to accomplish and what it can accomplish, um, it's really about the future. It's really not even about Stephen Avery, though. Obviously, the documentary is, but you know, honestly, unfortunately. Unless we revamp the system now, today, which is just not going to happen, have Stevie, Stephen Avery not is not likely to get out of prison, unfortunately. And it will be just like the first case, and, yeah. where the only thing that got him out of that first case was Newly te- discovered te- technical, yeah, yeah. technology got him out. Yeah. That's it. 
And a lot of people want, you know, this guy to be pardoned. It's not, he's unlikely to be pardoned, either one of them. At best, they can get a retrial. Yeah, on the technology, like if a different EDTA test comes out confirming there was it in the blood and it meets standards that would allow that to come into evidence, you know, um, I do agree with you. I think that the chances are slim to none that Stephen Avery right. will get out. I do think at least he has a good defense attorney behind him. I think what was the saddest but also the most interesting part to me at the end was that Stephen has been left because he's exhausted all of his appeals. He doesn't have the right to counsel anymore. Right. And so he's really taken up his case on his own. And the fact that he showed so much initiative, you know, someone who has no idea about the legal system other than having been, right. you know, a part of it for so long of his life, but no legal training, you know, educating himself, looking through his own files, his own evidence, and writing his own motions, um, you know, was really remarkable to me. So I think to answer your question, Chelsea, of what we can take away from this is just like the public being educated about the justice system and being more aware so that when they do serve on juries, they're a little more astute as to what goes on. Or um, And I think caring about local elections, a lot of jurisdictions, you know, vote on their, you know, prosecutors and their sheriffs and things of that nature. And I also think what this drove me to do was look up the numbers. And I think that those are really not just interesting, but almost like we got to know these numbers, like how many innocent people are in prison? And obviously nobody knows exactly, but there are estimates of like two to five percent, they say would be a reasonable estimate. And, you know, if only one percent of people in prison are actually innocent, then that means there are 20,000 people currently sitting in prison who should not be here. And then it looks like, you know, the the um DNA evidence that exonerates people, you know, 52% of the exonerations have been from DNA. So it goes to show that as technology gets better, we're doing a better job. If you look at the trend with exonerations, the numbers have gone up. In 2015, it was 149. 2014, it was 139. And I think it is because we're getting better with technology to be able to set people free. Who well, do while not. that's getting better, I, 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 what I don't see getting better is the inequitability of what's happening. It, to me, it's just a very big issue of rich and poor. You know, if Stephen Avery had money to start to fight this the minute that rape case came out or the minute, you know, this started, it, you'd be looking at very, yeah, at very different he, cases. Yeah, but he used his $400,000 settlement, which was woefully inadequate, but he used all of that money Absolutely. for the best defense team. And I think they so, did an, a stellar job, yet right. it still ended up the way it did. But how how can we start to think about getting the system to be more equitable? How, how does the system use resources that benefit both sides without having to bankrupt either side? Right. And I think those are kind of questions we need to think about going forward yeah, because I agree. these things aren't going to change. I want to end on um. one encouraging, hopeful <laughs> note. I do think, as a former journalist, I think it's really interesting to me how powerful media can be and this is the third show i'm thinking about serial i'm thinking about the jinx and i'm thinking about stephen avery with serial things ended up happening in adnan saeed's case that would not have happened had it not been for that right. show with the jinx robert durst is now coming to los angeles today it was <laughs> announced that he's going to be after he pled guilty in his gun case in louisiana he's going to make his way to los angeles to face a murder trial in susan berman's death yeah. stephen avery now Kathleen Zellner, one of the women who prides herself on getting wrongfully convicted, um, getting their convictions overturned. She's gotten, been she, successful 17 times. Yeah, 16, now times. she's taking an interest in his case. So I do think it's really fascinating to me that the media is serving as like the fourth branch of government here and is really um, 
through these documentary people. through these documentaries and shows they're educating the public and they're also you know opening up these cases these cases that have sat no one cared about for years right. on end right. they're opening up these cases and they're getting things to happen and they're sure. making changes for me the positive thing is the number of people who've become interested in this case who've been interested in justice and the correcting the justice system and there are things that we can do and they're slow and you know yes we have to look at who's running for different offices and things like that for that most of us have not cared about for a long time and maybe now this is motivation for us to start yeah, caring yeah. And, and just to kind of piggyback everything that you guys have said um, <clears throat> obviously especially the social media excuse me or just you know journalists and just the media outlets but obviously a lot of this has um, has transpired because of the uh, uh, the so the news outlets of social media that has come about Twitter um, Insta, I don't care whatever it is, however social media has been disseminated is huge and I think that we just definitely need to keep that pushing. We definitely need to become uh, more active in, in our engagement with society, not to, you know, diminish any entertainment that's out there, but you know, we spend a lot of our time looking for stuff that's just funny and just fun, you know, but we're not concerned about our neighbor. We don't know our neighbor. We're not concerned about our community. We're not concerned about what's going on in the courts. And so because of that, a lot of times what we see is injustices will continue to happen until it hits your doorstep. And then when it hits your doorstep, you're turning around looking for somebody else to help you, but you weren't out there advocating when, uh, when you, you know, when it was someone else. And so yeah, I think that's far, important. Yeah, I think it, it is huge. And, and I think documentaries like this to piggyback on that, we need to we need to continue to see these. We need to see uh, this footage, video footage of police. Uh, but more importantly, we need to open our eyes as people, I think, and lean to each, toward each other and actually try to become more active and concerned about what's really going on in our communities. Shaka, you got any final thoughts? I mean, it, this is a tragedy from you know top to bottom, but <laughs> positive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do. I'm liking the viewer interaction. I, I love that viewers are getting out there and they are engaging. You know, they're finding that key and going looking at the picture because that is what viewers can do. Um, and if you if he didn't really do it, there probably is some evidence out there that could be newly discovered. Um, so I, I think engaging with the public, and I, you know, you mentioned social media, Netflix. This is great, and we live in an age that this kind of media oversight, like us, can too. maybe exactly, can be involved yeah. in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, can actually help. So, well, I think it's one yeah. more question too that um, probably many many of our viewers might want to know um, is our particular opinion as to whether we think he actually did it or not. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to comment on it because I'm not going <laughs> to speculate. <I'm> well, <laughs> can, can, should we? If, if you'd like to. I mean, I well, almost, it almost, I, I don't want to sound like so apathetic, but it almost doesn't matter. To me, the biggest thing about this was the the spotlight on the justice system and the flaws. Right. And that's I what I focused I on. Yeah. There are some days where I'm like, yeah, he he may have, and many other days where I'm like, I don't think so. But I do not think that he got a fair trial, and that yeah. is the biggest problem for me. me I'll make I'll one say, comment: yeah. Brendan Dassey should not be behind bars. I agree. That <laughs> I will but feel I'll also saying. say that from what I have seen, again, um, and I, I've seen maybe a biased perspective, uh, but what this video has has shown me. Um, is inadequacies, obviously, in the justice system, but inadequacies in that 
process of, of, of developing information and evidence. Um, and I don't think personally that Stephen Avery is guilty. I'm not going to speak in terms of whether he committed this crime or not. I'm speaking in terms of whether he's guilty. And that means that the evidence that was presented at that trial actually was sufficient enough uh, to prove that he actually beyond was guilty. A reasonable doubt. Yeah. Beyond a reasonable doubt. I agree with that. Doubt. I agree with so, that, but I also think he's innocent. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I will go so far as to say he's innocent, but I'll go so far as to say there's a reasonable doubt <laughs> right. that was created in that trial as right. to his that, guilt. Yeah, right. And Absolutely. that if I was a juror on that panel, then I would not have um, right. Come right. up, come with a guilty verdict. Right. All right, guys, that is it for tonight. Thank you for joining us yes. on this special Making a Murder After Buzz show. You can always tweet us your comments. I'm at Chelsea Galicia. Just BJ Abron. At Shaka Strong. At Mari Fagel. Love to hear what you have to say. Please comment, like, hopefully, this video. Uh, let us know. What are your thoughts? iTunes. Five oh, yes. Stars. iTunes. Oh, yes. yes. Please <laughs> do <laughs> rate the show. Please. Thank you. All right, thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz, see you later. The views expressed herein are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.